average time it takes to do a sexual assault examination in the emergency department is two hours. Who has two hours to do this? The more hardware in your body, the more chances you are to get infected around it. There's two issues that people complain about all the time. I waited too long, and the doctor never talked to me. Right. This is where the fight is, and it's not going away, and everybody knows it. The opportunities to screw this up are enormous. It's amazing that somebody would have the balls to put something like that down. When's Michael Jackson's doctor doing a shift in your ear? (laughs) I can't sleep. You should be taken out, beaten by a hose, and then shot, and then tarred and fed. Zing! Zing! Ham! Boom! Yeah! Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and those who are fans of Risk Management Monthly. Both of you. We are involved in the summarization program. This is the third of our programs. We've gone through one, year two, now we're going back to year three. And as we're heading towards starting our fourth year, we are going to do the highlights, the pearls, the lusty, trusty, dusty, moldy oldies, which brought us to this point. Rick, you're starting out, and we're in what month? June of 2009, and it's not Rick. It's the handsome one. Oh, no. Smell. Oh, my God. Yes. Do it. Do it. So this month, we had a guest commentator. Her name was Kari Caruso. She's an RN and NP that does sexual assault examinations. So this almost entire series of this month was about sexual assault. So here are some of the pearls that she went through. First of all, when you're doing this, you need to be aware of your local requirements. So there are local requirements and sometimes there are state requirements, but you need to be aware of those requirements. That's step number one. Step number two is you need to know the technologies that are involved. And this has changed rapidly in the last few years. So please be aware of the different technologies if you're going to do this yourself. Then we actually talked about a paper. This study was a randomized prospective study to evaluate child abuse documentation in the emergency department. Now, you would probably be able to guess what this paper found. Documentation was impeccable. (laughs) Uh, It was impeccable. It was easily done. No. So what this paper showed is that our documentation is bad, but even worse than that is that emergency physicians were unaware of what the correct documentation was. So that sort of leads into a big theme that went through that month, which is you don't have time to do this. The average time it takes to do a sexual assault examination in the emergency department is two hours. Who has two hours to do this? Who has the skills and knows the local requirements and the state requirements to do this? It's not somebody that's an ER doc seeing 16 other patients at the same time. So it is much better to have a sexual assault team do this, a nurse with a social worker and a whole group come in and swoop in and do this for you because the ER is just not a good place to get this done correctly. Because this is a legal document that you're creating here. This is something that's going to be used in a court of law 100% of the time pretty much, much more than we're used to. We then did another paper, which was Let the Record Speak, Medical Legal Documentation in Chases of Child Maltreatment. And again, you can guess that they go through the summary and says, we don't do a very good job of this. We don't know how to do it. And then we went through a number of different things that we should do on these charts. So for completeness, you should imply no causality in the description of your clinical findings. So remember that you can't 
determine from your examination what was consensual and what was not consensual. So you just have to sort of describe things. It also suggests here that you should describe things in as lay terms as much as possible, not using too much doctor speak, because this again will be used in front of a jury that don't understand doctor speak. You should document the time of the encounter, who was in attendance. It's important to speak with the patient alone when you're doing this, even if they're minors. So even if this is a minor as you're doing this stuff, you need to understand that that patient is your patient, not the parent's. So this can get fairly sticky, of course. You should also, when you've got children in particular, this study suggests that you should try and elicit as many of the spontaneous comments that the child is making rather than try and elicit them because kids want to please you. So if you say with leading questions, who did this? Was it that bad man over there? Was it your father-in-law? They want to please you, so they might say yes to things when that really wasn't the case. So this is a really an art, and there's a few more aspects to it, but the bottom line is that it's actually quite an in-depth art, and this paper went through many of those things. And if you're going to do this stuff, you should become expert at it. They then talked about, be aware that most successfully prosecuted cases of sexual abuse involve little or no physical evidence. So it's really all about the history that you took, the who's, the what's, the when's, the where, the what happened, and your chart should reflect that. So there should be lots of history taking in addition to all of the physical examination stuff that you're doing. They also note that it's really difficult to elicit timing from anybody, but particularly young kids. So maybe you can help ground this by saying, well, did this happen today? They usually understand it. Did it happen around your birthday? Did it happen around Christmas? So you have to try and anchor kids in particular to specific events that they might actually remember. The documentation that you use should include phrases like sexual abuse by history. Again, keeping it open-ended, not making any implications when you're doing this history and physical examination and in your documentation. You should ask, and this was interesting to me, about prior sexual activity. And again, you're not making judgments. You're just going to write down in fairly specific terms prior sexual activity, which may or may not be important in this specific case. Then what do you do for the parent or caregiver that comes in and says, look, I think little Johnny has been abused and I want you to do a whole bunch of tests. What do you do under those circumstances? Well, first of all, they say you cannot force a non-consenting teenager, for example, to go through a bunch of tests just because the parent said do it. So mum comes in and says, I want you to do this physical exam. You don't have to do it. This teenager, and this is where this usually comes up, is your patient, not the parent. And so in these cases, you've got to talk to the parents. The information about consent is available, and it's different from state to state, apparently, so you should know your state requirements. You should advise the parents that as an agent of the state, there are certain requirements that you must follow, that doing these tests also cost a lot of money because they think they're going to get it for free, and maybe that'll make them back off as well. And they have to understand that this is a legal process. This is not just a relationship between you as the physician and them as a patient seeking care, but this is actually a legal process and what they're asking you to do may be completely legally inappropriate as well as medically inappropriate. So then we went back again to talk about the examination in some more detail. And the key points of this examination is that it should be thorough. It should be top to toe. You should clearly focus on those areas which came out in the history, 
but it should be a top to toe examination and you should use that terminology that people understand. So instead of using the term ecchymosis, you should use bruise. You should describe very thoroughly where they are. You should use lots of pictures. You should use photographs, but you probably need to get consent for imaging, special imaging in these cases. Sometimes that's covered in your general consent. Sometimes it's not. But if you're going to take photographs, you should make sure that you get consent. You should avoid terms like alleged or rule out. Again, what you're trying to do is create a document here that has a lot of information that can be used by third parties, lawyers, and other experts, and be culled through to decide what the implications of those findings are, rather than you saying that bruise looks like it was a defensive bruise to me. You don't say that. You say where the bruise was, you say how big it was, and let the other people that are coming after you decide what that bruise or that other evidence suggests. Chain of custody is obviously a big deal. And if you screw this up, then the whole case can get thrown out. So chain of custody requirements, again, vary by state. And you have to be very careful about how you do it. They have to be handed off to the right person. They have to be taken in the right way. So all of this tells me that you need to be doing this a lot because there are so many pitfalls that you can screw this up in. So from a more medical point of view, what tests should we be doing? What prophylaxis should we be offering? And here again, our expert said it's a little bit all over the board. Generally, people are going to test for GC and chlamydia and do HIV testing and hep B and hep C testing. Should you be giving prophylaxis for these things? If it's a high-risk case, you certainly should. If it's a lower-risk case, there's room for judgment. The CDC, it turns out, has on their website, and it's updated continuously, what they think you should be doing in terms of prophylaxis, in terms of drugs particularly for HIV, but for all post-exposure prophylaxis for GC, chlamydia, and hepatitis B and C. So the best thing you can do is to refer to that website because it'll give you the most updated information. And so that was basically it. And the summary to me of that, I remember it quite clearly at the time, is that this is no place for wimps. Amateurs. You've really got to have experts in this. And I think this has changed a lot. It used to be that it was sort of dumped on us in the emergency department, but now it's much more often done by experts. But if you find yourself in an emergency department where you have to do these, it's one of those things that you have to know very well because the opportunities to screw this up are enormous. There's no case that comes into the department where your heart falls as much as one of these. You have gotten sucked into the middle of a very difficult problem. When it is small children, you are frequently involved in a custody question between the parents. I've had people come in probably two dozen times and say, this child was with the father for the weekend, please examine them for a sexual assault. When you say, why do you think, well, he hangs around with unusual folks or this, that, another thing, and what you find later on is that there's a custody battle going on. You are being used as part of this situation, and that's why I can't emphasize enough the fact that you take a very detached view, move back as objective as possible, don't start blaming anyone for anything. You're a tool that reports what you find. But to think that you're going to take a side in this issue is the wrong way to go. The other end of the spectrum, particularly when you're dealing with other older teenagers, mother's now hauling the daughter in, 16, saying she was attacked by this boy. You talk to the child alone, and it was consensual sex. Now, there are still things that need to be reported, but before you start blaming, starting prophylaxis, doing all these other things, you better lay the situation out. 
before I take a couple of young teenagers who are having their first sexual intercourse and start hitting them with prophylaxis for hepatitis and that sort of thing, I don't think that's indicated. And I think you do need to use judgment in these cases. There's obviously those cases where there is a brutal and violent attack. I think those are, in my career, the minority of the cases I deal with. It's family problems, family dynamics, teenagers showing that they're growing older. Those are the much more common cases, at least in my practice. What's interesting, we had a sexual assault response team in our hospital for a number of years, and Carrie was involved for part of it. That's how I get to know her. And initially, I must admit, I want to know parts of it. I just thought, man, I'm going to be going to court all the time. It's going to be a hassle. And the fact of the matter is, is that what is extraordinarily smoothly operated and physicians rarely got involved in these cases, except if there was some medical issues over and above the collecting of evidence has occurred. And, you know, there were standing orders for medications under my name that they would routinely give out when they needed to. Well, I'll tell you, the comment that was made by Carrie about most of these cases have no physical findings is exactly right. If I look over every one of those cases which I've had throughout my career, there's a handful in which there was actual physical brutality, bruises, that sort of thing. This is pretty much a he said, she said kind of situation. And what you are there, I feel that I am there to make sure there are no other physical problems, there is no damage that I have to get involved in, and to properly document the taking of samples, that sort of thing. But you point this out very well, Mel. In a busy emergency department, To have the time and sit and talk with the person involved, the family, community mental health, to deal with the law enforcement people. And most of our communities have certain law enforcement people who are called out for these things. God love the people from the sexual assault team because they handle the vast majority of that for me. And I think that that takes a huge weight off our shoulders. This is what they do, and you're right. When you've got an abdominal pain in one room and a laceration and a heart attack going on, it's very hard to concentrate on these issues. Yeah, I think that if you are at all interested in this topic, you probably ought to listen to the whole tape because most of it was Carrie talking. And it's kind of interesting. Carrie basically works both sides of the fence. And if you'll notice, the thread in this is trying to be dispassionate because she also defends men who are alleged to have assaulted women, and basically she's asking, please, let's have a level playing field. We can't assume that the woman is always right. And I don't know that that is all politically acceptable, but the fact is somebody does defend the other side, and she's looking for dispassionate, objective evidence on that chart without any kind of innuendos. Melvis, you did a fabulous job. Thank you. Very good. I know I did. Let's do July 2009. Discharge instructions, and it starts off with an article... Patients' comprehension of emergency department care and instructions are patients aware of when they do not understand. This is by Engel in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in April 2007. And they asked people what they understood. And what do you think? The answer is they they got it cold, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is pretty simple. Unfortunately, most people leave the department pretty much as confused as when they came in. And that's because of the kind of conversations we hold with these folks. The full extent of what was told to them was comprehended by 20% of the time. Right. Now, to be fair, they're talking about the full extent, which means some of that is irrelevant stuff that they're telling you anyway. But in any case, they suggest avoid too much information. They're just focused on the key issues. Recall of the components of the exam. There's another paper they talk about. 
This is interesting. I jam a paper, and they ask people about the recall of the physical exam. Yes. And the only thing that they remembered is that a pelvic or rectal was done. They remember that consistently. And then the rest of the exam, 50%, flip of the coin, whether the lungs were listened to, the heart was listened to, the belly was palpated, those kinds of things. And by the way, that study was done. I mean, it's good to comment on that study because they'd actually photographed or filmed, and they kept pretty good records as to exactly what happened in the room. The time interval was actually relatively short. I think it's in within the next week that they'd ask them what happened at the longest. And did they look in your eyes? I don't know. And it was exactly the same as flipping a coin. Did they look in one ear or both? And they actually had some of that thing where they'd done one side or the other. They don't know whether they've listened to the lungs. If you have a rectal or a pelvic, I think that's the kind of stuff you do remember. But nothing else sticks to anyone. This is good for when you're doing lawsuit cases because if you think somebody five years away remembers what happened that night, human recollection of these things is imperfect. And don't ever think that the patient remembers everything that happened. The third bullet that was covered in this situation here is avoid the use of medical jargon. When you put down the aftercare instruction, it's called a middle ear infection. It's not called otitis media. And you certainly don't want to put F slash U in AM. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, hey, I'm getting permission here. Yeah, My right, doctor exactly. said right there, you know. Yeah, uh, well, I'm sort of a yeah. morning guy, right? Go ahead. And I see doctors putting down this lingo all the time. It's like, what are you thinking about? These people, they don't understand that. You're not doing yourself a favor in any way because it makes it clear that you are clueless about how to write these things. You know, even simple things like, Mrs. Smith, you have a fracture. Oh, good, it's a fracture. It's not a break. Yeah, well, I'm actually, glad it's, it's not broken. It's, and they don't have any idea. I mean, this is a whole other language that's the equivalent of learning an entire other language. We shouldn't speak to them in that language because they don't speak it. If I could teach the residents one thing on the way out the door, it's when they get done with the discussion, just say to the patient, now, what did I tell you? To actually hear what they yeah, heard. I must admit, we're going to get to that. I think that's demeaning to do that. No, I don't think it is because well, you, you have to listen, know how to do stupid. it. What did I just tell no, you? No, that's you, you have to know what to say. It. <laughs> now, but when are you going to you, see the doctor now? Right. What is your diagnosis again? Yeah. When are you going to take that medicine? I think it's crap. Yeah, I think that a lot of them are confused, and unfortunately, patients are doctor pleasers. They sort of smile and nod their head, and if you actually ask them when they're done. Do they actually understand what was said? The nice part of that discussion, first part of that discussion was 20% of the time they understood. As being a teacher, you know, if you want anything to be remembered, you repeat it four times. And that points this thing out. The other thing is they're under emotional stress at that moment. Some of them are in pain. Some of them don't know how they're going to get things done. I think it's very hard for some of these patients to concentrate on what we say at that moment in time. So if you say it, the nurse says it, and there's some consistency, we have a better chance that they're going to follow through. I think one of the key things to do, though, is keep the amount of information that is essential limited. Exactly. Try to make them little doctors with all of the things that you're asking them to watch well, for. Well, in response to that, let me just say that we know that to be true. Unfortunately, the discharge packages people receive have done nothing but grow in the last 20 years. I remember when the discharge instructions sat on one piece of paper. He told them two or three things to do. Now they essentially leave with war and peace. The chances that they're going to read war and peace are real small. So I graduated in 1975 from my residency, thereabouts, or 73, somewhere in the early 70s. Right. 
And honest to goodness, we have been using the same discharge instructions since the day we started at Valley Presbyterian Hospital, and they have not been an issue in any one of our cases, which are, you know, frankly, a handful. We've been very fortunate. But I do agree. I've seen people come with this tractor feed when they didn't have laser jets. They had tractor feeds, and it was written on a paper that had wood chips in it, kind of thing, the cheapest thing you could get. It looked like toilet paper. And they would come with this big raft of papers and say, what the heck am I supposed to do? Yeah. Another point that was made in this is, and I must admit, this is my spin, and many of you will not step up to the plate on this one. I think it's reasonable for doctors to discharge the patients themselves. This is the last chance you're going to get to get it right. Any of the nuances that they say may be important to their condition. It will be quickly done. You know, I see all this time. The doctor puts up on the patient tracking board to discharge the patient. They're waiting 20 minutes for the nurse to get around to doing the discharge. And then God knows what the nurse is going to say. They may not be giving, and I know I'm going to get calls in this, but that's okay. They may be giving motherly advice, not professional medical advice about what to do with the fever, how to feed the child, all of these kinds of things, because I don't know that they've ever necessarily been instructed. And they may be listening to what other doctors are saying about, well, we're going to give them the brat diet and all this other crap. It's just ridiculous. And by the way, that was Rick Bucata, uh, if you'd like the spelling of that name. Let me just say this. Who actually has them sign the paper? is not as important as the fact that at the end of the entire process, the doctor goes in to bring everything together in a reasonable manner to answer the questions. And if you want the nurses to actually have them sign the piece of paper, I don't think that's the issue. The issue is when you send somebody in when they haven't heard the final discussion of what you think is going to go on. Well, why are they there? Get them to sign the paper. Why add this other 20 minutes or 15 minutes on there unnecessarily? You ask a perfectly reasonable question, Rick. Of course. And I hope you're able to answer that when the nurses' union comes to hang you. Listen, I must admit, I don't do a lot of shifts anymore. I admit that. But I can tell you, when I was doing lots of shifts, I did this religiously. I signed them out. They called me Nurse Bucata, and I still sign them out when I'm there. So the fact is, it can be done. It expedites the throughput in the department. It's the big clothes that you've talked about, yes. Greg. You wrap this whole thing up together, and you do it. There's two issues that people complain about all the time. I waited too long, and the doctor never talked to me. Right, exactly. So that being the case, this is your last chance. Do you have any questions, those kinds of things? Here's the follow-up. Here's your diagnosis. You're welcome to come back, and we encourage you to come back if there's any new or worsening problems. We're here all the time. Bam. Why do we make such a big project out of this? And I know you may have maintained control of the situation. I'll tell you, I've lost control of that situation as to how big the package of discharge materials is. And quite frankly, if you actually read everything that they walk out the door with, it would take you hours Honestly, to figure goodness, it out. Our patients are walking out with one piece of paper. Well, then you've done one it right. piece of paper. And they're going to get their lab work, and they're going to get their EKG, because they're going to be taking that to their follow-up doctor. So they're going to get an envelope of those things stuck in there. And I might say, the nurse will get you your lab work. But it's just as easy to stick it in the envelope yourself, bam, out of there. So they leave with that. And these aftercare instructions are for two people. It is for the patient, and it's for the doctor that's going to see them in follow-up. So that doctor can see, hey, this is what the diagnosis was. This is what the treatment they rendered in the emergency department. Yes, they did take a cervical spine x-ray, and it was read as a preliminary diagnosis as normal. So that when they go to the doctor in a day, they have everything that they really need. Here's a copy of the lab work. I have no idea why people don't do that. But one of the things that is frustrating is the belief until proven otherwise that computerized discharge instructions are better than what was there before. 
And that's a, just an assumption. Yeah, well, I understand it's an assumption. I'll tell you this, though. Our computerized discharge instructions can be read. I have doctors who have a handwriting problem. Okay, I got and, it. And if you actually hand that piece of paper around this table, it's not legibility with them. It's decipherability. It's what we do with Egyptian hieroglyphics. Have you ever seen three or four nurses around a table looking at a doctor's order saying, what do you think he meant here? You know what? When that happens, mistakes can so happen. Was that methotrexate or morphine? That yes. It, supposed it, to get? It, if you don't know about the, the difference, we get a big problem here. We don't give methotrexate for pain. Yeah. Yeah, we do we give it for ectopic pregnancy? Pain. Exactly right. To give them um, pain. One of the other things is somebody mentioned putting down that the patient understood the... Obviously, that's self-serving. It's just making the case. Oh, yeah. When, in fact, you have no idea whether they really understood it. And so I think the idea is to keep it simple. Shorter is better in these cases. And the option is, please come back immediately <clears throat> if there's any new or worsening problems. I'm not going to give you everything that can go wrong in a head-injured patient. No, you can't do that. But what you can do is cite patient, mother, and father instructed. Because it is nice to know that they were in the room, they heard that discussion, they had the opportunity. I'll tell you what, if this turns into a lawsuit, I want to know who was in that room and heard those discussions and who did not follow through with the instructions the way they were supposed to be. Our one-page aftercare instructions do have at the bottom, your signature acknowledges the understanding of the instructions. Right. So whether in fact that means anything is... Yeah, right, is it disingenuous right. to say the patient understood the instructions, agrees with the plan, and promises not to sue me? We couldn't, we couldn't put that <laughs> in We there, wouldn't no. put that down. Let's see what else we have here. Well, I think I've rehashed this, my idea of coming back to the ER. It's really dangerous for you to put down, see your family doctor. Well, the family doctor may be on vacation. The family doctor doesn't know how sick you were. So the fact is they'll make you in a recheck appointment in 10 days from now. That's when we'll get you in. When you needed to be seen tomorrow, the day after, those kinds of things. So the out is they were your patient. There's a problem that's going on. They need to come back to you. They need to feel comfortable coming back. And the word immediately is important because others say, well, I came back two days later when I started the vomiting I didn't have before. This puts the ball in their court with regards to the initiation of action. Well, we tell them when to be seen, and it's always printed there. If you cannot see your doctor, you come back here. We are, I think the best way to put it is, we're the bottom, the least common denominator. If the police don't want you again, your doctor can't see you, you can always come here. And I don't think that that's unreasonable. That's what we have to do if we give service. And I do think it's important to give people copies of their stuff, but put it in an envelope, because then they read that EKG thing and says nonspecific STT changes, etc. I say, what does that mean, doc? I don't want to talk about that. This is for your doctor. We're going to put it in the envelope. Yeah. And I do think there is a mistake when we try to make patients mini doctors. We tell them about the signs of this or that or the other thing. There was a great study in the abstracts where they looked at try to determine whether people were able to determine if their wounds were getting infected. And the gold standard in this was the doctor's view of it. So what does that mean? But they were clueless about the signs of infection coming up. You know, an infection is kind of black and white. You got swollen, you get pus. It's more painful, those kinds of things. What about more subtle things than that? They were not good. You cannot make them little mini doctors. You cannot say, check the pupils. They'll say, what the? What is a pupil? Well, Rick, when we were looking at head injury instructions and we got them from around the country, somebody had head injury instructions that said, if the pupils are no longer symmetrical bilaterally, <laughs> what did that just say? I mean, why would we think any human not trained in medicine, would take that home and know what to do with that. And not only that, that was on the discharge instructions a lot in the 
prior time. By the time your pupils are unilaterally this conjugate kind of thing, you've got decorticate posturing. You're right? fit for postal employment exactly. only, yeah. <laughs> I uh, think we get it. We get it? You get it? Move on. Uh, all right. Control substances. What does the DA consider when you give out a lot? Are you got candy man? So that you talked about the Michigan automated prescription system, which tells you by on the internet about who's getting what. And in California, I don't honestly know if we have that just yet, but I know our doctors get letters, and they get a letter saying your patient da 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 da, and these are the prior prescriptions that they have, and they just give you this entire list, and they basically say you got to take that stuff seriously. Now, it would be great if we could just go onto the computer whenever we thought there was an issue and find out. And maybe that's coming, and, or frankly, maybe it's already there because it sounds like you've already got Michigan's something Michigan's like got that. that system. You can put it in the name of any patient, and you know when they've gotten prescriptions. Now, we're close enough to the Ohio line that they may have driven the 50 miles into Ohio. But at least for the state of Michigan, you know what's been written for that name, and you know which doctors have prescribed that medication. Do you know whether we have this, Melvis? I'm not aware. Okay. Well, we don't know, but anyway, the states are doing this, and it's an attempt to kind of prevent you becoming a candy man, inadvertently, of course. Right. Let me tell you how this is really used. When we know that we've got somebody who we're not controlling adequately with their pain, and we're going to start the process of referring them to the pain service and this, that, and other thing, then we've got some documentation. When the department sends a letter, Dear Mr. So-and-so, we've noticed that you've had some problem with controlling pain. We know that you've had 27 prescriptions in the last 90 days. We feel that this is not in your best interest. You ought to read those letters. They're very nicely couched. But what it's basically said is, we're aware of what's going on. We're on, on. to you. We're on to you. That's basically what it says. Well, in that regard, they also talk about people calls up and says, when's Dr. So-and-so working? And that doctor may be one of the more liberal doctors with regards to this. And they basically suggest that you not give out the schedule for the doctors over the telephone. We never like that. give that schedule When's up. Michael Jackson's doctor doing a shift in your ear? <laughs> I can't sleep. Yeah, right. So I think it's important for a variety of reasons. The other thing is is that Dr. Smith will be on it tomorrow afternoon. Fine, well, let's go rob his house tomorrow afternoon. He's not going to be there. Yeah, right, right. So I always feel uncomfortable do, with that. Do any of your departments release? No. No, we would never do that. We are allowed to say the doctor who is currently staffing. We will release that. But what we don't release is who's coming on next, who's on next week. That doesn't happen. I don't think we need to go into consent from intoxicated patients other than to say it is not the number, it is the clinical assessment that you have generated. Yep. So you want to be a medical legal expert is the next section here. It says everything that you would intuit. You've got to know how to communicate. You've got to know how to speak in simple terms. You've got to be viewed as trustworthy by the jury. You probably got to take both sides, plaintiff and defense cases. And now, a, wait a minute. You take both sides if they are meritorious. Well, you don't, yeah. That's, I, I mean, that's assumption on either side. Yeah, but the assumption on either side, that's right. But I'm that's not, actually an important point because I stopped doing medical malpractice reviews because I could not stand being the plaintiff expert witness. Even though the patient was hurt. Yeah, mm -hmm. because it just didn't seem like the whole process was about really fixing the underlying problem, which was somebody was hurt. It was about hurting somebody else because somebody was hurt. So I said, well, if I can't do both because of that, then I shouldn't do either. And so I stopped doing them. And that's generally what most experts say, right? You've got to do both in order to be considered reasonable. So if you come up and say, well, doctor, have you ever been the plaintiff's expert witness? And you say, well, no, I've done 150 reviews and I've never done that. It probably makes you less useful as an expert witness, right? Well, it probably does. But 
I will say openly, have I done a few cases and gone to court for the plaintiff? Yes, I have. Is that confession now? Well, it's not confession. It's just the truth. And, a, yeah, right, I understand can, that. You can tell me. Mia Copa, <laughs> Mia Maxima Copa. Just the three of us. Okay. And it probably is just the three of us, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. You know, one of the things that was here that I think is a little unusual is they talk about the practice environment in which you work versus the practice environment in which the defendant works. And they suggest that if you don't work in a similar environment, that your ability to say what should be the standard of care is not cool. How does that work? Because a lot of these people try to get these experts that are university professors, etc. Well, that's not the same as my community hospital where I'm the only doctor on. So how can that person in the university say, what's it like to work in a one-doctor emergency department? Well, they really can't, but that goes to weight of credibility. They can certainly talk about that in court, and they can ask questions like, well, isn't it true, doctor, that you always work with residents, that you've never had to do it by yourself, that sort of thing? And the jury will then give certain weight or credibility to that testimony. But it'd be hard if you've got somebody who works in a community hospital as one expert, and then you have the person with a 50-pound CV and who's cured cancer on the other side. I mean... Those two are not going to be seen as equal by that jury. You would be amazed at what they consider to be equal. And you'd be amazed at the people who've shown up and given testimony. I was involved in a case where the plaintiff's expert and emergency doctor, who had flunked the boards three times, was still allowed to speak to the standard of care. Now, you and I sitting here think, why are they having somebody who has written nothing, done nothing, you know, a legend in their own mind and hasn't passed the boards speak as an expert. Well, you know what? What's an expert is what the court says is an expert. It's not what a room of 500 doctors would say is an expert. Well, you know, it's amazing. I've seen a number of cases where I find out that the expert on the other side, that usually the plaintiff side, is just a run-of-the-mill ER doc that I happen to know. Nothing's particularly special. It's just one of the boys. And it's kind of interesting. Maybe I figure in those cases, maybe that's the best they can get. But I don't think that that's probably the case. Maybe these people have good skills at communication, they look good, act good, smell good, and they represent themselves well, and maybe that's an offsetting to the fact that they haven't, and are not professors that have written 20 papers. Right, right, exactly. All right, I think that that's largely the gist of this. There were some letters that we did, and we'll not go into those. That is, therefore, the July 2009 issue. Oh, that brings us to August 2009. That was a good month, as I remember. I think our stocks were going up, and Hmm. that was going in the right direction. This was a hodgepodge of tort reform miscellaneous comments. But I think there's a lot of very good stuff here that we have to talk about because as we speak, as we're giving this talk, we're reconsidering health reform in America. What was going to be a done deal isn't a done deal. So maybe some more of this is going to be on the table. We presented something from the Arizona Capital Times, the fact that the governor of the state of Arizona, Jan Brewer, had signed into law a bill that would raise the burden of proof in medical malpractice lawsuits. You know that the burden of proof at this time is if you get 51% thinking that it's on that side of the fence and 49 well, you win. It's not like in criminal cases where you need to be beyond a reasonable doubt. 
that something happened. No, here it's just a sort of a balance of the scales. And she signed a bill in the law that would, and let me get this, moving it from the preponderance of the evidence, which is the current standard, that they would need to demonstrate clear and convincing evidence that something had been done wrong by the physician. It's self-serving, but I like that. Yes. I won't be able to be sued for malpractice if I actively stab the patient in the eye and and shoot them. And you're dumb enough to leave the knife in the hallway. I understand. That's why I want it. I'm not sure it's the best Um, system, but that's why I want it. And it was anticipated with this legislation that what they're trying to do is attract and maintain more physicians in the state of Arizona. What this came from was actually pressure being brought by the Arizona Medical Association. It's not for the emergency doc in particular. It was for all those guys who were on call to the emergency department. So the only reason this got passed is because you also put under this law the cardiologist, the thoracic surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, all those docs who are called in. Picture this. If you're an orthopedic surgeon and you get a phone call that says, I've got a 19-year-old male from a motorcycle accident. We're not sure of his color because there's too many tattoos. And by the way, do we have insurance? We don't know. But we'd like you to come in and handle his open, both bones, the lower extremity fracture. How crazy happy is he about that sort of thing? Not very much. And with a problem that was happening in Arizona is happening across the country. And that is people on call to the emergency departments are dropping that call responsibility. That's what this was about because the Arizona legislature wanted to drop another shoe or was planning on it, which says, if you are on staff, you will take call. You know, the emergency docs were almost an afterthought in this legislation. And I think we need to understand this. By the way, Everybody weighed in on this. Greg Patton, who's a well-known plaintiff's attorney, basically said, this is the kind of thing that America was meant to be. You get a regress of grievance. You have a perfect right under the Constitution of the United States. And he said, it would be a chill on the legitimate, meritorious medical malpractice lawsuits when people are injured. Well, what we're seeing here is a fight between the profession and what it thinks its responsibilities are and the plaintiff's attorneys who feel they have a right to turn the white paper of the chart into the green paper of money. And this is where the fight is. And it's not going away, and everybody knows it. On the other hand, provision of care in the ED is federally mandated under EMTALA, which means you don't have an option to take people into your practice. Every other specialty has a choice of taking people into their practice except for the emergency doctor and those doctors on call who have to come in by their hospital bylaws. This is where this fight is going, and it's not going away. Well, the same thing happened in Texas, and when they established the new level that raised the bar about the evidence level needed to sue successfully, they did this, and there was a rash of new applications in the state of Texas for licensing. It was so dramatic that they got behind in licensing them physicians. So this tact is successful in attracting doctors to your state. And it did actually lower the malpractice insurance rates for emergency doctors in the state of Texas. And I don't think it's just Texas and Arizona. I think there's a bunch of states that have... Well, Georgia, Georgia particularly had a positive response when they did this. Also of note and worth commenting on, 
is that ASAP had gone and talking with the federal government about this entire problem of uncompensated care. You say we have to take care of them. We say we don't get a choice of taking care of them, and yet if they don't have any money, you're not putting up the cash. So ASEP suggested, and I was a part of some of these discussions, why don't we just take that as a charitable contribution, which the emergency doc could deduct from his taxes. If you've given out your usual and customary bill in that case would have been $180, add all those up for the year 2009, And this $185,000 was a charitable contribution. I'd take that in a nanosecond. Anybody here at the table who wouldn't take that as something reasonable? Well, And what happened? Well, of course, where do you think it went? It wasn't considered reasonable. Well, yeah. Hello, this is the Obama administration. Nobody would have considered that reasonable. Well, I consider that reasonable. And the point is, you're being asked to give of your services and put your assets at risk, you know what? They ought to figure out something here that makes this thing fair. No dermatologist on your staff has the same problems that you do. If you don't bring your 100 bucks to the visit, you don't get seen. And that's sort of the way it is. Carrying on, on May 27, 2009, attorney Brian Kern addressed the issue of entity insurance. Now, I know that no emergency doc really wants to hear about insurance. Boring, boring, boring. But you know what? You only don't want to hear about it until you're sued. And then all of a sudden, it's an important issue. What is this entity insurance? Well, it's the entities that are now more and more getting sued. It's not Dr. Herbert. It could be Dr. Herbert. And if he is at a private institution and he's formed his own LLC, limited liability corporation for his corp. They're perfectly willing to attach his LLC, which may contain his asset base. And that veil's been penetrated. So if you think you're going to protect your asset base in the LLC or some other entity, the answer is no. And by the way, the smart plaintiff's attorney names every entity possible and then may throw them out as the case goes on. But there is a statute for them, too. So maybe after two years, they have no more rights to add other entities, which may have the ability to pay. So the LLC and all these other entities have insurances and people want it taken care of. We talked also about another concept in here, which is very important, particularly in the private sector, as opposed to public institutions like yours, Mel. If you're in a small private hospital, that contract between the group And the hospital often contains what are called cross-indemnity clauses. A cross-indemnity is if both the hospital and the doctor are sued and it's found that the only active negligence, that means you were doing something, wasn't just passive negligence, but the only active negligence is the doctor, then the hospital, if they have to pay any money, can go right back against that group and that doctor and recover that money. Now, cross-indemnity works the same way. That means if something happens and it's only the hospital and not the doctor. The example, you write a clear order for 0.1 of epinephrine. The nurse gives 10 of epinephrine. You understand that that's the hospital problem and not your problem. Well, then theoretically, if you lose any money, you can go back against the hospital. But this cross-indemnity clause stuff, when I'm advising, I have mentees every year, the 
senior residents around the state of Michigan who have me look at their contracts when they're going places. This is one of the things I want to see. I want to see if it's referenced in there, in their contract, if in the master contract there are cross-indemnity clauses. Because I think you ought to be aware of what waits down the road for you, and to not disclose that, I think, violates open covenants and open contracts. Any comments about that, gentlemen? None. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know nothing. Okay. The other parts of this, which we commented on, is the insured physician, the underinsured physician, and dealing with physicians who don't have insurance. Just understand, everybody on your medical staff that you deal with, there ought to be a staff requirement. Here's how much insurance you carry. I have never seen an emergency medicine contract when the limits of insurance for the emergency docs was not stated in that contract. Right. The hospital doesn't want to be the deep pocket they, by having an uninsured doctor on their staff because that's the who they'll go after over well, the hospital. Well, let me tell you, there are certainly hospitals. They'll impose that against the emergency docs, and some of these will have doctors on the staff who don't have insurance. The last thing you want to have happen is be involved in a case with a doctor who is uninsured. Because the amount of work for the plaintiffs to go back after personal assets of an uninsured doctor is a lot of work. So what are they going to do? They want to use the joint and several concept and go back after your money. We looked at an article as well from Medscape that had to do the concepts of group entity, sort of double jeopardy sorts of problems coming up. And four options were presented on what to do about double jeopardy. Here are the things that were suggested, and I understand that some of this has to do with the finer points of insurance, but you need to know about it. Whenever you can, when you have a doc and a group, use one policy limit to cover multiple entities if you can, or have a layered level. It goes to one group, one first, like the primary doctor, and then the excess spills over into the corp. The corporation has the same problem that the hospital does. Do they have active negligence, failure to supervise, failure to train, all this sort of thing? Or is it merely the passive negligence that you were dumb enough to hire Dr. A and now he works for you, so you owe things? If you can, have one policy. You have multiple doctors who share a set of limits. So on a case, the case is set up that Let's say three doctors saw that patient, and you know that there are plenty of emergency department cases which have the changeover, the handover, so two doctors are involved. Let's say they come back for a second and a third visit. I've seen cases where there were five emergency doctors named on the same patient. Well, how many limits of liability are there before the hospitals kicks in? You need to think about this. Because if automatically you have to go through one, two, three, four, five, then when does the hospital become a participant in this activity? Good advice, I think, is that when you're looking at contracts, at least the first time, if you're young and starting a group, have somebody who understands insurance look at it, know how it's layered, what consequences these have down the road, because I think it's important. Next thing is we looked at American Medical News of July 6th, where the legislature in Ohio had introduced a bill supported by the Ohio State Medical Association and the state chapter of ASAP, which had to do with setting malpractice limits and the level at which you needed 
to achieve proof in cases in situations where there is a disaster or a similar emergent situation. Let's say that it isn't a bus that crashed or a plane that goes down. Let's say it's anthrax. Let's say it's this or that, where there is some risk to the doctor himself. And the Ohio State Legislature has basically passed that this has to be essentially willful or wanton negligence. For example, if you come in to see the patient and decide to cut their head off, that would be willful and wanton. But in a disaster situation, you're going to have to prove something gross and terrible to ever have a malpractice case. I like that. What if they deserved having their head cut off? Well, (laughs) that's going to have to be presented. Let me give you an example of this, which is frightening. Let's take, for example, John Edwards (laughs) recently went to Haiti. What the hell do you need a lawyer for, no offense to anyone listening to this, in Haiti? What you need are plumbers, because you need water, and you've got to get rid of shit. That's what you need in a disaster. You need electrical engineering people who can actually put the power back online, and you need doctors. You sure as hell don't need lawyers. And well, down there, he said, well, I'm just making sure that the care given in case these people are upset by the care. I think that's a pile of crap. He should be taken out, beaten by a hose, and then shot, and then tarred and feathered. The last thing I want to have is some lawyer down there discouraging people who have given of their time and effort to do the best job they could. This is fundamentally wrong. America's turning to shit based on people like this. I'm sorry. John Edwards is a good Democrat. I'm a good Democrat. You can't say anything bad about the guy that made all of his money by suing doctors. That bad. Yeah, yeah, okay. Are you feeling better right now? Better? I'm feeling better. Okay. But at okay. least he hasn't cheated his wife. <laughs> okay, well, well, at least if he had a kid by another woman, he'd admit it. Yeah, 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 I know. We're going. It's a tough place to go. Zing. Zing. Pam. Boom. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're going. We're all right. By the way, other states, this isn't the only state that's looked at this. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, West Virginia, Utah, Louisiana. They're all sort of looking at this and decided, you know what, guys? If bad things happen again, let's take Louisiana for the example. If there's another Katrina, do we want doctors from the outside coming in here to help us out? Yes or no. You know what? People get the kind of health care they deserve, and it needs to happen. Of course, there were pushbacks by attorneys on this one as well. And some of these states which have put up economic barriers and said you can't sue for more than this amount or that amount of money, these are being challenged around the United States. The state of Oklahoma, the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma, struck down the $300,000 non-economic damage cap, and so that they're opening this stuff up for further decision-making. By the way, the concept of disaster care is not the same concept as Good Samaritan, and we need to keep that in mind. We're not talking about people who come upon a wreck. We're talking about people who go to an area that's wrecked and give up their time. Those are different kinds of concepts. The electronic medical record, we had a whole section on electronic medical records. Let me say this, not much good was said about (laughs) the current push and the fact that there's a problem. And interestingly enough, we had an interview with Kathy Bowerman, Esquire. She's a senior partner at Simeon Huckabee in Detroit. Her only practice is defense of emergency physicians. That's what she does, emergency medicine defense. Doing the Lord's work. Doing the Lord's work. And Ms. Bowerman gave us some of her views about trends in emergency medicine malpractice. The first issue she mentioned, without hearing the rest of the discussions that month, was the problem charting issues. 
and especially those having to do with electronic medical records. And she pointed out some things that we kind of need to think about. She said she has noticed that in electronic medical records, it is harder for the doctor to access the nurse's charting. It's difficult to know what the nurses have said. She said, how can this be reasonable? You're supposed to know what those people have said. You've got to go back and get it. Secondly, there's more time spent with the chart than there is with the patient. And she says, from a patient satisfaction standpoint and what they thought you were doing standpoint, this is bad. She's also had to deal with a case where the electronic medical record went down and then what are you going to do during that period of time in accessing, charting, timing? And she suggests strongly that you have the paper back up ready to go at any moment, day or night, and then they can get it patched in and fixed up when the system comes back up. By the way, these always go down about 2 a.m. on a Sunday when there's nobody from information systems available or at least sitting around the hospital. She also said that on many occasions, EMRs, she has found to be a quantity substituting for quality. Lots of paper, lots of check marks, lots of boxes, lots of redundancy, and yet you've created so much stuff that you can't find the key kernels of information that you need in the care. I think the interview with Ms. Bowerman was eye-opening, that this was somebody not prepped, not told, not instructed what the kinds of things we've talked about, and that's what she talked about. She just said the right things. Yeah, it was just a crapshoot. Yeah, it was a crapshoot. And you know what? She had the exact right comments. By the way, we spoke about black box warnings and how difficult those things are. A black box warning is being considered for acetaminophen products, which are lumped together. We all know that there's lots of products in which acetaminophen will be a component of that particular drug. It didn't seem terribly intelligent. And is there enough data to kind of kick this thing off? Probably not. Although generically, black box warnings are a problem because if you have some alternatives, like there's a black box warning on the quinolones now, Right. there are real cases. If you go onto the internet and see quinolone and tendon and lawsuit, there's a bajillion lawsuits, sites there, just waiting for those lawsuits to occur. And the question will be, well, doctor, could you have picked something else? And the answer is yes, I could have. Yep. So I think you have to be very careful about those. Well, there's a problem, though, with the quinolone black box, and that is, is there a lot of them? They say, well, it increases it maybe three to four times over the group taking another medication. It's still small. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with pneumonias, things like that, it is a good drug. At the last course we did in Vail, there was an anesthesiologist attending the course, obviously for write-offs, and he told me about two cases that he was involved as the anesthesiologist in repairing these tendons. The FDA has recorded over 500 cases of this problem, and it's going to be more and more because they're used like water. And so I think everybody needs to be aware of it. There are alternatives. Use the Z-Pak when you treat the bronchitis because neither of those drugs are going to work, but at least you won't get a tendon rupture. Right. And at least they recognize what they're being given because they've been giving that from everybody else. There was also a black box warning on propoxifen, Darvon. And well that's actually, deserved. Well, I was going to say that's the only one that makes any sense to me because as far as I know, the literature has found that to be just about as effective as acetaminophen. And in most studies, no more effective than acetaminophen, and certainly acetaminophen is, despite what anyone says, is still one of the safest drugs we have. I mean, literally, people take billions of those tablets every day, and almost nobody has a problem. 
Lastly, we had a couple of malpractice cases that underlined previous themes. A doctor in the emergency department had ordered a PSA on a patient. Why? I don't know. What do you think happened? The results came back at three days later. They were very high. Nobody caught him up, and the guy died. Three years later with a prostatic cancer. Jeez. Why in the world would you send off something like that? Also, there was a Texas case in which a blood culture was done in the emergency room on a child, febrile child. The results were never sent to the family or the family's doctor. It was positive. The child developed an infection of a heart valve and required a valve replacement and had an unbelievably bad course. Again, if you've asked a question, you better deal with what comes along. And that about summarized the month. It's September 2009, and in this month, what we did was a couple of case studies. And the first case study is very interesting. 75-year-old female presented to an emergency department with multiple complaints, including atrial fibrillation, and her blood pressure was really high, 290 on 160. She had an INR of 12.6. She got a little treatment for her CHF and some other things, and when they realized how high her INR was, they started on vitamin K. But unfortunately, a few hours into her emergency department stay, she became unconscious and was found to have a gigantic bleed in her head and what we talked about on this one was that this is a high-risk case if you have a high INR from Coumadin and you present with headache you must presume that this person has a bleed and rapidly reverse the patient we talked about how to do that which is with high doses of FFP and we're talking 15 mils per kilogram of FFP and vitamin K but what you really want to use is what Ricky? Orthomin complex concentrate, which is actually at our most recent course, I asked a U.S. physician. He said, yeah, we use this. I said, where the heck do you get it from? Nobody else raised their hands. We now have it at our hospital as part of a trial that we're doing. So it must be available somehow because we have it at our hospital. There's no question. It is commercially available in Canada and in the Aussies. And the Aussies as well. So we're the outlier. Yes. But we are the outlier. And so I wouldn't pin anybody down with this as if this is standard of care. Because I'll tell you what, our hospital didn't have it. Now, the other thing that they know there is that that FFP, we quoted one article that said FFP takes up to 30 hours to reverse that high INR, and that's why we need this prothrombin protein concentrate. Then we talked to her quickly about a case of a patient who was being transported or was about to be transported. Then he noted to the paramedics that he was HIV positive and dying of AIDS, and they refused to transport him because of their own fears about developing AIDS. This must have been, we decided, a very old case back in the early days, and this would be an extraordinarily rare situation now. And jurors and malpractice claims. We did a study from clinical orthopedics and related research from 2009, which went through some of the orthopedic issues with malpractice. And basically the summary was there, again, as we've heard many times, that most of the time these cases never go to trial. They're settled if they're obviously were bad, they're done. If it goes to trial, emergency physicians win the vast majority of the time. But even, as Greg has told us before, even if you win, if you go to trial, the average cost of just taking that to trial and winning was $100,000. So if you get named, you've lost kind of thing. So you don't want to get named. They also talked about this idea of jeopardy. 
So should you settle the case for a reasonable amount of money or should you take a case that's sort of on the edge to the jury? And they were suggesting it's better to settle because every now and then you get a runaway jury that costs a lot of cash. And so you can play that both ways. You can go to the plaintiffs and say, look, we all agree that this is sort of on the fence. How about you take a million dollars now? Then uh, that million dollars will be yours because if we take it to trial, we're likely to win 80% of the time. And you don't want to go to trial because every now and then it goes for $14 million. So many of these cases are settled outside of court by the machinations between lawyers. By the way, you guys are familiar with the concept of playing high-low. Right. A lot of and times, I think it's detailed in that issue where they talk about, well, settle for this or that. Let's have the jury decide, but if they decide, it will, the payment will be no higher than this, and if they don't decide, it won't be any lower than that. Exactly, and high-low in big-money cases. But if there's lots of damages, but the question of violation of the standard is a mixed bag, then that's not a bad thing to do because what you've done is you sealed the top and the insurance company can handle that. Well, I think that those examples of how money can be saved and the jury not be given just a rogue jury opportunity are kind of interesting, although I would expect that any malpractice attorney worth their assault would know how to deal with these techniques Oh, absolutely. If they don't know that, they hadn't been around very much. Then we did the great debate for ED chest pain, which we actually covered a number of months ago in the summary. So I'm going to skip that and go to our interview with Anne Hurlick, who was the Vice President for Risk Management at Beta Healthcare Group. And we just asked her quickly, what are some of the recent trends in ED malpractice? And let me outline them. She noted that they've been getting a lot of cases of epidural abscess. We've talked about those. They're tricky to pick up, but they go for a lot of money. A lot of appendicitis cases where CT scanning was an issue delay in doing CT scanning, false negative CT scanning, false positive CT scanning. So we've already talked about that a number of times. Appendicitis continues to be an issue, the missed appendicitis. Maybe I'm speaking a little bit quickly here. I need to calm down. I'm so excited about these things, though. So excited. Don't wet your pants now. <laughs> Radiology reading was another issue that they are having at Beta Healthcare. So missed readings is another issue that keeps coming up over and over again. You realize as we go through this, as we speak to different experts, and this was in September, that these experts keep having the same issues. The missed radiology read that you don't follow up, the missed appendicitis, the spinal epidural abscess. These are things that come up over and over again, all of these experts saying the same thing throughout this fair land. What they often point out, too, is that if doctors actually suffered the real consequences other than just money from these things, they'd be better. For example, the pilots are quite good because if they don't follow the risk management systems, they don't go home. They die with the rest of us. And so having systems which are reflective of what the physicians can and should do are really important. Well, that was September. October 2009, started off with an interview with Jillian Schmidt. You know her? Uh, I know who Jillian. She's a very lovely young woman. Georgetown University. She was second-year resident when she was named in the suit. She's active in ASEP's Young Physician section. And basically, it goes through all of the advice that, honestly, we've already covered about what happens if you get sued. Don't talk to everybody. How you can talk. The necessity for emotional support. And there was about five elements. Remember that being sued does not mean that you're a bad doctor. Remember that you're not alone. Use the resources available to you to avoid a sense of isolation. I think that's probably very true that people feel very isolated. Don't let the situation consume you. That's easy to say. It's acceptable to acknowledge to yourself that you may have made a mistake, but that's why you have insurance. We don't go into the corner and suck our thumbs rocking back and forth when we have a little car accident. 
That's why we have car insurance. This is the same kind of thing, but it becomes so adversarial, they have to make you look like an uncaring jerk in the jury process that it's an issue. Yeah. Wait a second. That was me getting my thumb out of my mouth. The reason I think we had a beautiful interview with Jillian is because, not because of each fact element, but it was the degree to which the lawsuit process had affected her. And you could tell, as we talked about those issues, she was very upset by the process. Now, I think groups need to take this into account. They need to have somebody for their docs to talk to, not about the case, but about how they feel. Because doctors take this stuff very hard. You know, you can call a doctor anything you want, but never call him a bad doctor. Because now you're threatening the core of their being. You know, it's interesting, though, that she was a resident when this incident happened. Usually residents are not sued. Their training programs are sued for failure to train people or teach people or supervise people. But it's unusual that a resident would be named in these kinds of things. As a matter of fact, I'm familiar with some cases where they're just systematically excluded because they are trainees. And so they want to put the blame on the educational process. Well, her name appeared in the summons and complaint, and she had to participate. And I'll tell you what, she did not find it a very pleasant experience. It is actually framed a lot of her interest in what she's doing academically. It impressed upon her the gravity of the situation. There are some case reviews that were done that month. I will pick up a few of them that I think are interesting. 54-year-old male presented chest pain and back pain, was evaluated, sent home, came back again, was evaluated, sent home, and third time. And basically, you know what happened. He died within 24 hours of being discharged with a cursory workup on the third visit because he'd been worked up twice now kind of thing. And so he died, and that was obviously a problem. Another case here, oh, this is cool. A 48-year-old male was presenting to the ER with alteration of his mental status, speech, and ambulation. And the good old CAT scan was done, which showed sinusitis, and the diagnosis was put down sinusitis, and out he went. Obviously, we are disproportionately focusing on the value of black and white tests, x-rays, trump clinical judgment, and here is the thing. Sinusitis doesn't cause these things. The guy had meningitis, $3.5 million settlement there. Hmm. And let's see. There were some letters. One of them was about a psychiatric patient. This is cool. Psychiatric patient, I don't know, he had some free air in his neck from I don't know what happened or other. And he refused to be transferred to a hospital that could take care of him from the local hospital. And the people, the police and the doctor said he was oriented and he was able to say that he wasn't going to be transferred because he was okay, he alert. If forgetting to acknowledge danger to self or others, it also comes into this. And basically, you can be perfectly oriented, but absolutely nuts. The vast majority of people that I've seen who have problems with suicidal ideation, that sort of thing, have really been quite well-oriented. That's not the problem. When you're well-oriented and you have a 9 millimeter pointed at your head, I think there is some obligation for us to intervene. Acute schizophrenia, they're oriented. Usually they are. It's about capacity, capacity. not orientation. Right. Uh, another one, gratuity for providing uh, medical assistance on flights. We've discussed that before. Yeah. They want to give you a free drink kind of thing or something like that. Can you accept that? Absolutely. You didn't bill them for a free drink. I don't think you have any problem with that. Well, what if it starts getting interesting? Uh, we're going to give you a free ticket. Now, that's got some value to it. Do you accept that free ticket? Yeah. You didn't bill anyone. They gave it to you. I've never seen, by the way, a whole free ticket. What I've seen at things like Australia Airlines, Qantas, when I gave aid on one of the planes, said, here's a certificate for half off your next flight within the next 60 days. 
Now, what are the chances <laughs> that another American is coming back in the next 60 days to Australia? It just doesn't happen. Another interesting letter. This is about medical records and the fact that an electronic medical record might put in the wrong word. And yet you don't want to go through and read all of this stuff. And so their issue is, if I don't change the word, will I be at fault because I'm signing a document that is inaccurate, incorrect? And then we get into this stuff about detailed, dictated, but not reviewed, and signed, but not read, or signed prior to transcription, and those kinds of things. And I believe it was your advice, doctor, right here, that that was okay. And we also talked to Kevin Clower about this, the idea of these voice recognition systems where instead of a transcription, you've got a voice recognition and it might put in something that is obviously a mistake kind of thing. You don't want to go back and read that stuff. So is there a safer way to say, yeah, no, I don't read this stuff routinely, but obviously that's a mistake and it has no consequences from a malpractice point of view. It was just how this record was generated. And one of our readers came back and said, no, 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 no. These records must be authenticated as accurate and correct. Well, I'll tell you this right now. If you think that everybody reads these records... No, I don't. You know, that. They don't do it. But from a medical <clears throat> legal point of view, should we not be signing stuff that we haven't read? Or I think it's perfectly fine to say sign prior to transcription, because the truth is, if you think we're going to go back and spend two hours reading every chart on that shift and correcting things... You're not going to do it. I understand. The doctor who wrote to us basically said these are CMS rules for payment, and he made it sound like this was kind of important, and it was not an option to do what everybody does. Well, but I, you know, what can I tell you? Yep. That was probably the gist of October 2009. That's it? That was it. That's good. God, and they actually paid good money for well, that month's know, stuff? every one of these can't be super meaty. Okay, what can I tell you? All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're summarizing year three. Year three of Risk Management Monthly. We're going to go from November to May of 2010. Hope you're enjoying these. Here we go. Greg Henry. All right, let's go to November 2009. In California, a case took place which I think is fascinating and we need to talk about this one. This is where the parents of a two-year-old have initiated a malpractice suit against a hospital for allegedly radiation poisoning their child, resulting from multiple attempts to do a CT scan of the neck following a fall. The child was uncooperative. They started the CT, stopped it, started it, stopped it. The child obviously had not been sedated adequately. Several hours later, radiation burns were noted on the child's face. Hey, now, that's going to happen, you know? That, yeah, that's a lot of rads. Now, they also did some blood testing, and there were serious chromosomal damage noted to the child. This is not a good thing. We also commented that there was an article that appeared in the American Journal of Rankinology in May of 2009, and this is very interesting. The radiologists themselves understand this, and the title of the article says it all. Image Gently, Why We Should Talk to Parents About CTs in Children. And it was pointed out that there are probably 4 million people who will develop cancer in this country who are currently now under the age of 65 based on radiation doses which are delivered during their youth. I have no idea why I cannot convince more people not to shoot those films. Well, the FDA just came out a couple of days ago saying this is going to be a substantial initiative for us to make physicians and patients and their families aware of the consequences. Medical radiation equals CAT scan. I mean, there's no... <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, yeah. it's really CAT scan. Right. But you said you don't understand why 
people don't do less x-rays? And the answer is obvious, because if I miss something today, I get sued tomorrow. If I give you cancer today, I'm retired and done, and I'll ne- there'll never years. be any consequences right, right. to it's, me. Exactly. That's why. It's 30 years difference. And I don't know how they're going to deal with that, because there's one very potent stick and one tiny little carrot. And the stick is, I'm going to get sued if I miss something. And the carrot is, you won't hurt so many people if you do less scans. And I don't know how they're going to fix that. It's funny, in all this crazy talk about we're going to have health care reform, nobody's ever talked about what are we going to do about this issue. And it's a huge issue. Because now you've built four more million cancers down the road. I think this is a huge national issue. And it's very funny that since this stuff has come out, I use this with parents all the time. This is what I say. Everybody's now aware of the problems with CT scanning and the dangers. I would not subject your child to this kind of radiation unless they absolutely needed it. We need to take that approach because they don't want to hear about cancer 30 years down the road. Although this case that you're talking about, this was out of control. I think they. That's an out of control case. They pushed a button something like 30 times. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. It was crazy. And then there was the Cedar Sinai cases where they hadn't quantified the amount of radiation, and all these people who had strokes who were elderly people started losing their hair yeah. as a result of this. So these were kind of some rogue situations. <laughs> right. But still, just routinely, I don't think there's a legal consequence. Actually, the legal issue, I think, is informed consent. The parents need to know that there's a risk here. Are you willing to accept that risk? Here's the risk. One in a thousand kids are, who have an abdominal CAT scan will probably get a, a cancer and die from it. Nobody ever says the and die part. The and die part is kind of important. Yeah. 500 chest x-rays. So there are clearly some shared decision-making elements here because one of our papers in the abstract pointed out the risk of you having a serious contrast reaction with IV contrast is one in 400,000, and yet people are making you sign here, sign here, sign here for contrast, yet this is a fatality one in a thousand is going to die from it. Master Herbert's comment, though, that it's instantaneous when you get your problem from the contrast. When you have the problem with the CT scan, it's 30 years later. That's why if you're doing a CT scan on grandma and she's 85, it probably doesn't carry the same significance as a five-year-old. It just really doesn't. Uh, No, but the fastest growing population for getting CTs is children. Because with a 64-head scanner, it takes like a nanosecond. You don't have to sedate them. And so it's easier. The threshold is going down. So Henry's dictum is right. You can, with clinical examination, make a huge number of decisions. There's a big push for shared decision-making in the obtaining of CAT scans in children. Big push. Yeah, and I think there should be. The second, we had a letter from one of our listeners who wished to remain anonymous and said the plaintiff's attorney in a chest pain case had done something he'd never heard of, and by the way, I'd never heard of. The chest pain patient, obviously seen in an emergency room that sees chest pain patients every day. So he requested to prove what the standard of care should be to see every redacted chart, no names, of every chest pain patient for the last two weeks in that department. Now, that was filed, and we don't know exactly what the judge would have decided, but fortunately, this case was settled for some nominal amount of money. But I think that the very concept that they could search through your records to try and determine a standard of care is total nonsense. The standard of care has nothing to do with what your partners might have done in the last two weeks. It's what the medical community believes to be 
what reasonable doctors would do under like or similar circumstances. And this concept of searching through the charts, sifting through the charts at a particular hospital, I think is absolutely dangerous. Well, I hope that doesn't go anywhere because that's just a nightmare on a number of different levels. But just the expense, the time, the hassle, who's going to do that? Well, they don't want to go there. Actually, they're going to need to do it. They're going to go through these charts and saying, actually, doctor, here's 20 patients that you've seen the last 20, and all of them got a troponin except Mr. So-and-so here, and they all had uh, chest pain, and you did an EKG in them, but you didn't do... So it's basically looking at not only what other doctors are doing, but what you did and how you deviated. So fortunately, this case got settled, so this precedent is unknown in terms of what the consequence would have been. No, actually, in some ways, I wish we could have seen Mm -hmm. what a judge's decision would have been. Because I'd like to see this killed right now and not continued. But you know what? We'll have to wait another day to see what's going to happen. We had another reader write in and chastise us, saying, lose the us-against-them attitude. Patients are not the enemy. I fully agree that patients are not the enemy, but the system is the enemy. Mm -hmm. And when one out of every $6 paid eventually goes... If I spend six bucks for malpractice, the chances are less than one dollar of it will ever get to an injured party. Because when you look at the grease of the insurance company, you look at the cost of experts, all the other people around there, the cost of the defense attorney, the percentage between 30 and 40 percent that goes to the plaintiff's attorney, the amount of money that ever goes into anyone's pocket is actually, except in very unusual cases, is relatively small. And I think that to be somewhat angry against the system is not unreasonable. I think it's completely rational to suggest that this is a good system for compensating people who have had injuries. It's just ridiculous. It's absurd. And I know people who are quite left-leaning who believe that we should be a socialist state, but they're part of the medical malpractice system and who will argue that this is a good system. This uh, works. It makes physicians better. No. No, it doesn't. The New Zealand system is very good. There are other systems that work far better than this, but this does make patients and physicians be antagonistic. There are lots of physicians who are afraid of patients because they've heard that every now and then you get sued for a lot of money, and that's what's the worst thing about this system. Not all the other stuff. It's the fact that a lot of physicians feel like every patient is a potential lawsuit, and that's not a good physician-patient relationship to begin with. I hate this system. Well, but for your friends who are left-leaning, let them remember that there are only two people left in the world who think that communism works. Fidel Castro and the LSNA faculty at the University of Michigan. Well, there's and a difference between communism and left-leaning. I lean, <laughs> I fall to the left quite substantially. Yes. Well, but I don't we, believe in yeah, communism. Yeah, that's, that's a cerebellar problem. Yeah, it's, yes. an okay. it's an infarct, right. <laughs> also, we had some very interesting letter about the problem of x-ray misinterpretation by teleradiology and folks away from us and what happens. I'm involved in two cases right now that are directly related to the Nighthawk readings, or something like Nighthawks, various forms that read... More of a budgie than a... Here's the problem. (laughs) Nighthawkoid. Yeah, because what they do is they send back a reading, and the next day, the local docs read the films, and then they say, we agree or we disagree. Well, I don't know how carefully overread of those films is. Now, in retrospect, as they're looking at that film, they're saying, yeah, I guess there is a little blood there both the Nighthawk people and the other doc, and maybe TPA isn't the ideal drug when there's blood there in the film. But the emergency doc is named, 
And by the way, an emergency physician with MD, F-A-C-E-P, after her name, has said, oh, all emergency doctors should be able to read CT scans and know whether there's blood. Now, that's a bunch of crap. I've been a board examiner for 30 years. We do not examine you on reading fine points of blood on a CT scan. And I think that this is absolutely ridiculous to think that two board-certified radiologists are sort of saying, well, the emergency doc, he should have picked this up too. I just think that's wrong. I think it's morally wrong. Absolutely. But, by the way, it's going. We talked again about ECAS-3 and thrombolytic therapy for stroke. We don't know where this is going, as far as I know, about whether it's really going to be this 4.5-hour window. It's certainly been suggested by some people. I think the Heart Association has come out and specifically endorsed this. Yeah, yeah. The Heart Association are also the same people who thought that blowing in the mouth and beating the chest 60 times a minute was a good idea, and that was wrong. So it's only the opinion of an organization. It's not the law, so to speak. We also did an interview with Graham Billingham and Bob Bitterman together, and so we got to hear some of their thoughts on what's happening right now in the medical legal world. And both of them pretty much agreed that when they looked at their case studies, neurologic, cardiac, abdominal conditions predominated. This is where the big money is, and this is where you need to concentrate in your risk management activities. We went through some very common things that they are now doing, and they're strong believers in things. I'll just give you a few of the things. They believe the chest pain should be considered cardiac till proven otherwise. If it's a close call, it's cardiac. They are very much into the idea of preventing tunnel vision. For example, just because they vomited after visiting a taco stand doesn't mean the taco stand caused the vomiting. More than that, I don't think that's the end the taco stand usually affects, but what can we tell you? They believe strongly that cardiac risk factors shouldn't even be sought by emergency physicians because it makes no difference in the emergency situation. I agree with that. And they're very strong on the idea of multiple markers. One marker, no marker. They're not in favor of it. Any comments on that things, gentlemen? No, I think we've flogged that one to death. All right. Last thing, we talked about a few of the radiology claims in emergency medicine, and the bottom line still is, if you have any questions, believe the patient and not the film. We still do get sued for negative CT scans, negative wrist films, all of that stuff. Just assume that the machine has missed it. And that brings us to the end of November 2009. Let's do uh, December 2009, which was, in large part, an interview with Dan Sullivan, who is a legend in emergency medicine or malpractice. Don't you think he's a legend? Yeah, he is. A god, demigod? Yeah. He's a demigod. Right. Yeah. He's, up th- he's old. He's up there with you guys. <laughs> That's all that matters. He talked about, and actually this was sort of a presentation that he did at ASEP Scientific Assembly, uh, the Mills Lecture, the Cognitive Autopsy. So he sort of summarized what he went through in that Mills Lecture at ASEP. And some of the things that he said I think are really pertinent to emergency medicine risk management. And we've covered a lot of this stuff, but it's really interesting to hear it again from somebody else. And the single most important point that he brings up in that lecture is that communication is everything. 
that malpractice is about miscommunication most of the time, that if we were better at talking to the patients, having them understand things when we're seeing them at the time or when we're discharging them, when we're getting them to understand the follow-up plan, if we could do a better job at that, we could probably significantly reduce malpractice. So it's all about communication, and you should never forget that. Your job is to be the consummate communicator and so practice it. It's not a skill that some people have naturally. You just have to practice it with your patients at their level, not at your level at their level. As I look at my case series, I think there's a 5% lightning strike factor that all I can say is, thank God I wasn't there because I'd have missed that one too. And then there's the 95%, which are sort of interactive questions. The 5%, I don't know what we're going to do about that. As an example, he talks about this kid that comes to an emergency department complaining of chest pain. This chest pain is kind of stabbing, tearing in nature, but he's pretty young and gets seen three times. And the emergency department group doesn't do anything. This kid tells the emergency physicians, the multiple emergency physicians, I have a history of aortic dissection in my family. And his mother says, you know, we have a history of aortic dissection in our family. And he gets seen by three different emergency physicians. They all ignore it. And ultimately, he has an aortic dissection and a bad outcome. He uses this as an example of failure of communication. If you're having a cocktail party and you tell your friends who are non-medically trained that you're having chest pain and everybody in my family has this horrible thing and they drop dead from it, any normal person would go, holy crap, that sounds bad. But for some reason, these physicians have decided he came in asking for a CT scan and they've decided he's not going to get one because he asked for it. How much more does he need to tell you? Everybody in my family drops dead from this disease. I think I need a CT. You are correct, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, you know that most people who get dissections have some underlying condition, Marfam's, all the other connective tissue diseases, all these other sorts of things. What's amazing to me, and that's why this almost belies credibility, is that could you actually tell three emergency doctors People have died of aortic dissection in my family, and I have this pain in the middle of my chest. That would catch my attention pretty fast. Well, one of the things that physicians may not know is that there is a strong family relationship with this disorder. So the idea is there's not a wake-up call going on here. Oh, this can, oh yeah, okay, now I remember. Yes, this is a problem, because sometimes we don't understand these relationships, and I think that this may have been an issue. I did a 10-dance lecture, and it was really well done. He has a phrase. What is the phrase there about this selective listening kind of thing? Right, right. I forget what Anchoring bias. Oh, there you go. Anchoring Anchoring bias. bias. And then you come in with your prejudices, and you basically don't listen to anything they're saying, even when it is as egregious as this. Yep. By the way, that begins the moment you pick up the chart. You don't even have to see the patient, because as soon as it says certain words on that chart, You've decided what the patient has, and these hot buttons wipe out intelligent decision-making. And there's no question about it. You know, they reviewed 2 million data points and 170,000 patient encounters in his group trying to work out what are the key issues. And they said that the key issue that you need to do to follow after communication is basically believe what the patient tells you. When the patient tells you something, believe it. As soon as you have the bias against what the patient is telling you, or they're telling me for some other reason the patient wants something else, then you get into trouble. So it's about communication, and part of communication is believing what you're told. He also points out in this lecture that emergency medicine is incredibly, ridiculously complicated, that the average emergency physician will make 5,000 decisions per shift. 5,000. 
thousand per shift, and that's just off the Chinese restaurant <laughs> menu for lunch. Even before they've seen the patients. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. He said that you need to be responsible for the test you order. That's a recurrent theme that we've seen here over and over again. If you order the test, you're responsible for finding out the result. And if the result is abnormal, for making sure the patient knows about that result. So pretty basic stuff. He then went on to say, what are the future trends that he sees in medical malpractice? And he suggested that he thinks guidelines are going to be a big issue. The failure to follow guidelines may result in increased litigation in the years ahead. He also suggested that they are also seeing this rise in cases that relate to epidural abscesses, more and more missed cases that are going to trial, and sepsis and the failure to follow your sepsis flow chart that you have for your hospital. So sepsis and epidural abscess, again, two things that keep coming up over and over again. And then we did a couple of cases from the literature. And one of the papers we did was about the danger of central and peripheral venous access, that putting lines in can result in significant harm to the patient. And these are being litigated. So only put lines in when you need to. If oral rehydration works, then do it. If you need to put in a central line, use an ultrasound machine. It's safer. If I could look back over 30 years of doing this, I would have to say that everything has become reduced, smaller, less invasive. We use less NG tubes. We use fewer central lines. We do a lot less harm and dangerous things to patients. As a trainee, you got every opportunity you could to do a procedure. And I think the more we go on, the less procedures I want to do. There was a time when central venous pressure was routinely measured, and it took a long time for the studies in the ICU setting to say, in fact, the patients do worse when you do central venous measurement than when you don't, when you, those catheters are not helping, they're actually hurting. Well, the person who came up with that stuff originally, Dr. Swan, I think was actually from here in Southern California, and the Swan-Gantz catheter became sort of the standard instrument which in the ICU was used until somebody actually, as you said, looked at that litter and said, it doesn't influence the clinical decision-making very much. So here was a thing that was theoretically reasonable to measure these pressures and respond to them, but the fact is that it didn't just work out, and there was downside. Gans was at Cedar sinai I remember as a resident when I did my first rotation in the CCU and I walked past the door and it said Gans, and I turned to the fellow and said... Not the Gans. Oh, the Gans. That was one Gans Gether. And the other paper that we did in that month was medical student documentation in medical records. Is it a liability? And the answer was, it's potential for a significant liability, so be careful. Students need to learn how to write charts, but they don't have to learn how to write charts on charts. But if they do, make sure that you read them and sign off on them, because sometimes they say things that are silly, like we've talked about in the past, and we had a medical student do this recently, who described the patient as circus tent obese. And so That's we consider that probably not a good thing to write on the chart. Not a good thing. By the way, the danger is not what the med student writes down. It's what the med student writes down that nobody looks at. After all, if the attending had looked at what they wrote and then said, no, we have examined that, this was the finding. Something that clearly indicated he's teaching the medical student. So have him write it up on a separate piece of paper, grade it, look at it, send it back. But what's really happening is notes get put in the chart that no one ever sees. 
That was the guts of the December 2009 CD, but it's one of those ones you want to go back because Dan Selvin really is a very important voice in risk management in emergency medicine, and you want to hear that interview in full. So I suggest you go back and listen to what the man himself has to say. I agree. Well, that's the idea here is if you're interested in any of these topics, then go back and listen to the entire 80-minute droning on that we did. (laughs) The Circus Tent Obesity. You know, I think it paints a wonderful picture, though. You know, I think that I get it. Uh, maybe this medical student should have been a journalism major kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's amazing that somebody would have the balls to put something like that down. Yeah, it's amazing he's ever actually seen a circus tent. <laughs> All right. January 2010, there are some cases that were brought up. One of the first ones involves the person that comes in and they have some hip pain and you take an x-ray and it looks okay. You send them home and they came back several days later with this displaced femur fracture. So that when they were initially seen, it wasn't displaced. Now it's displaced, more morbidity, more mechanical things have to be done to it. And the issue is you need to be aware of this occult fracture of the hip business and you need to understand that if people suddenly have pain in their hip, in fact, some people believe that hips break spontaneously that the fall when you break your hip that's because you're falling because your hip is already broken right this osteoporotic fracture occurred and then you fell to the floor versus the other way around so the idea here is know the imaging that needs to be done when you expect somebody to have something that may be an occult fracture so in this case we're talking about mris or certainly CTs, because unfortunately, because they're more available, but MRI is the, is the preferred test. Right, but in most of our hospitals at night, if I got a CT scan, it would show what we're looking I for. I think in most, but I think the ideal test, in fact, we have an abstract in that issue entitled, The Use of MRI to Detect the Cold Fractures of the Proximal Femur in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, which is obviously a very big deal journal. And they said it's better than the CT scan? What did it say here? Don't ask me to read this thing now. I'm just well, trying to summarize this yeah, thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. But the bottom line is plain x-rays can be wrong, and the patient's outcome may be worse. And every one of us has seen an occult fracture of the hip where, in fact, you know, grandma couldn't walk, but it seems to be like painful, and it came on rather suddenly, and you want to say, well, it's probably just arthritis. Now, wait a second. I hate to become a clinician again and examine patients, but if you actually move them around and produce that pain, my view of it is this. Old people, sudden (laughs) onset of pain in the hip, it's broken. Don't debate this with me. Just shoot the right film. I've seen enough negative films that let's just go ahead and get the right study. All right, that was the first case. The second case, 47-year-old history of asthma presents with chest complaints, wheezing and feeling ill. No clear changes on the chest x-ray per the emergency physicians. However, the radiologist the next day says possible differences on the plane film and suggests performance of a CT scan. That's called self-referral. Right, I understand you know, that's that. That's the Starker yeah, yeah. loss, which was not done after the initial ED visit. The patient presented two days later with severe bronchospasm and ultimately fatal pneumonia. Judgment was against the emergency physician for failure to file the radiologist's suggestion. This is scary because how many times have you had radiologists recommend some additional test? Every time. (laughs) Here the doctor didn't do it and he nailed them for not doing it because there was a bad outcome, bad process. So that is a little scary. I don't like the lesson that that teaches us. No, no, no. I don't like the lesson no. either. There was a bunch on Good Samaritan myths. I don't think we'll go through those anymore. I think we beat that into the ground. What else we got here? Oh, yeah. Then there was our interview with Dave Talon. 
Dave is the director of the emergency department at Olive View, a medical center here in Los Angeles. He is boarded in internal medicine, infectious disease, and emergency medicine. He is the chairman of that residency. He is probably the preeminent, he and Greg Moran, preeminent physicians involved with infectious disease litigation, research, those kinds of things. So the question to Dave was, uh, Dave, what's cooking with the infectious disease lawsuit? And he started off with meningococcemia. Meningococcemia is maybe the flu. It's easy to miss on the first visit in particular. The outcomes are often very bad, and it's all about delay because the diagnosis will become quite apparent in a relatively short period of time. We had a case, and I think I've mentioned our case, the petechiae, when were the petechiae seen was the whole issue in that case. Did you give antibiotics quickly? We decided to settle because we didn't think a lay jury would take the position that these patients' outcome is not related to how quickly these antibiotics are given. But in all fairness, in retrospect, everything is easy. Until you have the petechiae, I think meningococcemia is incredibly difficult to diagnose. Well, he mentioned, actually, that particular rashes occur in only about a third to one-half of cases and can be conspicuously absent in the prodromal stage. The next thing was fever in the splenectomy patients. So we have a lot of these guys who ride motorcycles, get hurt due to a testosterone toxicity. They do stupid things, and they have their spleens removed. And how susceptible they are to bacteria that are encapsulated in the bacteria at the top of that list is the pneumococcus. And so the idea is that these people have to have their immunizations, the pneumococcal vaccine, the influenza, they got to have their flu shot, they have all of these immunizations because they don't get infections more frequently than anybody else, but when they get them, the spleen is essential for the removal of the encapsulated organisms, and it's a problem. So as a matter of fact, if you talk to people who have seen splenectomy patients who come in with fevers and die, they're all like 35 years old. They're not exactly. old people. They're young people in the prime of their life, and you're going to call it the flu because you didn't connect the dots between fever, spleen, this is bad, and then you need to treat until proven otherwise rather than assuming, well, it's just probably a virus. Maybe well, it is a virus. And the knee jerk is spleen out. I almost don't care what you've got here. Here's a shot of this. See how it goes because if you're sitting around waiting for them to deteriorate, you're going to have a problem. Well, you know, I remember reviewing lawsuits where the issue was in the, well, that's the next case, the sicklers. Yeah. So the sicklers basically autosplenectomize themselves. They have these recurrent spells of ischemia and ultimately because they of They infarct the, their own spleen. Yeah, they right. do. And so they have a little raisin where the spleen used to be. And these are kids, four, five, six years old, basically have lost their spleen functionally. And they come in with a fever and the doctors think, oh, here it is, an ear infection. Yeah, but it's not really an ear infection. This is pneumococcal septicemia. And prior to these kids being immunized, all of these lawsuits were there to initiate antibiotics in a timely yeah. manner. By the way, while we're talking about David Talon and talking about these infectious issues, if anyone wants to see the consummate medical expert, David is perfect in court. He's very self-assured, very handsome, dressed beautifully. He's got a CV that you actually have a small ladder to stand on and he knows how to handle attorneys. Don't miss a David Talon performance in court. You know, one of the things he also said is, yeah, we have this vaccine for pneumococci, but we're also acknowledging that some of these more benign pneumococci are mutating over time and are now becoming considered to be more virulent. So right. their idea is to make another vaccine that, you know, is going to get more of these guys. But in the meantime, there are these cases of pneumococcal bad stuff happening despite the fact that patients have been immunized. 
Here's the other thing that I thought would have easily been an issue for him, and he says he's not seen one case yet. That's the fluoroquinolone tendon issue, which right. I mentioned on the previous one. I haven't seen one yet either. In fact, I saw a TV ad, TV ad trolling for these cases, and the issue will be, you know, doctor, could you have used something else? And the answer in, these, in our cases is virtually always yes. Necrotizing fasciitis, he pointed out, often a delay in diagnosis. We don't appreciate how sick these people really are. And there are some hints on how to make this diagnosis, but they're not particularly consistent. And you've probably seen a few of these. I've seen, I don't know how many. Well, there was in one week, about eight years ago, we had five cases in one week at Olive Medical Center. And actually two of them occurred in husband and wife combo. So he came in with neck fast of his leg and got very sick and went upstairs. And then his wife came in about three days later with some redness on her face. And during the history, it turned out she was here to visit her husband upstairs. And we put this together and went, oh, my gosh. And she also had necrotizing fasciitis. Now, it turns out that because of the high vascularity of the face, she didn't do very badly at all. They just excised that area. But sometimes these occur in clumps. And it's a serious disease. So the classic findings in these patients is that initially they'll have pain out of proportion to findings. So a little bit of cellulitis with lots of pain. Later on, as they thrombose those nerves, they have anesthesia of that limb. So they've got a big necrotic area and they don't even really feel it very well. They have labelle indifference, so they're sick, septic dying, and they don't seem to really care about it. They develop blebs on their skin, which is sort of a late finding as they're necrosing that subendothelial layer. They have hyponatremia, which seems to come out a lot on their labs, and they have tachycardia out of proportion to what their skin's findings suggest. And often they're immune suppressed, they're alcoholics, they're diabetics, they're on steroids. So we do see these very frequently and they're scary. It's not quite as bad as meningococcemia, but many of these patients do very badly because what you see on the skin is just a minor manifestation compared to what's going on in the rest of their body. Yep. He also mentioned, as we have discussed many times, epidural abscesses. He says this is becoming a major problem, and there's lots of lawsuits about this stuff. You know, everybody's in agreement about this, whether it's the risk managers. Sandy Mahan mentioned this. There are a lot of well, people who talk about is this. Is the disease becoming more frequent, yes, or are they just getting becoming, more litigated? No, it's more frequent. Let me tell all you the of this group. hardware that's being put in, all of these procedures that people have, all of the opportunities to seed bacteria into your back. Is are, it MRSA? Is it MRSA organisms? No, no, not necessarily. No, it's all kinds of stuff. Including E. coli, you know, yes. from urine infections. Greg, that was excellent. Yes, it depends on the source. So it could be anterior, posterior, it could be E. coli, it could be staph, could be anything from which the seeding has occurred. Let me tell you who's becoming aware of this are the back specialists. If they have to go back in and do another, let's say they did L3, 4, and now they're doing 4, 5, they'll take out the old hardware that's in there. Because what they know is the more hardware in your body, the more chances you are to get infected around it. One of my concerns is that a physician I know, and I talked to him, I was in the ER and there was a patient there with some back pain and a little low-grade fever kind of thing. And I suggested maybe this person might be a candidate to consider for epidural abscess. And he said, say what? Now, if you've never heard of this entity, you'll never diagnose this entity. And it is, according to the lawyers and Dave and all of these other folks, becoming more and more and these are big money settlements, big money settlements. Well, the this, eye cannot see what the brain does not know, Kevin Clare? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Sounds good. Now, we don't want to go through all of the differential of that. We did that before. If you've listened to these over the last year or two, the issue here is you've got to be attuned. Thoracic, back pain in particular, point tenors of, of the spinous process, low-grade fever, IV drug shooters, all of these kinds of things. 
immunocompromised. Amen, amen, amen. He also talked about pneumonia. A typical case is pneumonia, shoulder or back pain pneumonia. This is being litigated. Consideration and documentation of the pneumonia severity index is, is a recommendation of his, although I don't think that that is a standard of care by any stretch of the imagination, although the fact is when you do the pneumonia severity index, it will tell you that you can send more patients home than you are. I think that, in all fairness, Dave especially is infectious disease. He does have a greater knowledge of this, certainly greater than the average reasonable and competent emergency physician. This may be something on the horizon, but I don't think it's standard of care at this point in time. Urosepsis, he pointed out, you have to be concerned whether there is a urinary tract obstruction. If there is, it has to be identified and relieved, or you'll never get these patients better, so that this may be in the setting of a kidney stone or some other kind of obstruction of the kidneys, something to be aware of. And lastly, there is the evaluation of the source unknown febrile child, and honestly, I don't think that there's anything new about this. There are the really young ones need the septic workup, and clinical judgment can apply to the older ones. And he did suggest, however, that if you're going to draw cultures, and yet you're still going to send the kid home, whether the CSF cultures or whatever, it would not be unreasonable to give a shot of rocephin, a long-acting antibiotic, because frankly, you don't know what those cultures are going to show. What if they come back and show they're positive? Yeah, the fluid didn't show any bacteria, and there may be some plus-minus white cells. You decide to send the kid home, it's not unreasonable. And from a lay person point of view, it's like, well, that makes perfect sense. You don't know what the results are. Why didn't you treat them in advance? I did. Thank you very much. So that is January 2010. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to go into March because there was no February because February itself was a summary CD. So here it is, March. Okay, guys, it's time to do the March 2010 summarization. Gregory, can, why can don't I you... do it? Can I do it? Rick? Yeah, you, oh, you start okay. us off. Calm you? down. Calm down. All right. We started off with a number of scenarios which local anesthetics could get us into trouble. Now, Really, we don't think about that stuff very much, do we, guys? I mean, we give local anesthetics all the time. Well, you know, let me preface this. This was the issue where we focused on GI abdominal-related issues, and so we're talking about them from the mouth down. <laughs> yeah, we really are. Anyway, we noted that you probably ought to be a little bit careful with viscous lidocaine. There were a number of cases reported when this was prescribed to treat painful oral ulcers in children, and they absorb toxic levels of the drug. Now, in all fairness... I have had parents take topical lidocaine and put it in the inside of the mouths of kids when they were really having a bad time. But what is the general rule we're going to give out here to folks to keep them out of trouble? I think that we've got to talk about the fact that enough is enough. You know, maybe a few times and it's okay. You can't kind of wash them in this all the time. Well, the more fundamental issue then is, are you going to prescribe this stuff? And the answer, I think, is no, you're not. There are other things that have been known to numb up kids' mouths that are probably a little safer. You can give some Benadryl or right. something like that. That right. is a known number. And especially if they get the little bugger to spit it out. Now, if they don't spit it out, you don't have any problem because they're going to go to sleep, you know, and they won't be complaining. <laughs> you know? The oral ingestion of as little as 5 mLs of a 2 to 4% solution of viscous lidocaine has been shown to be associated with seizures. Now, as my first experience with lidocaine and seizures when I let down the tourniquet on somebody with a beer block 
and they seized, and the family is watching that. And the only thing you can say is, we see that occasionally. It's yeah, uh, part of the procedure. Part of the procedure, actually. You wake up happier. It'll cure his depression. <laughs> that, that's right. It'll cure his depression. Make sure that the arm is fixed, and when we see it jerking like that, you know. We know it works, exactly. But I was actually, before this, unaware that as little as 5 mLs could actually be associated with well, that toxic response. people subscribe to this thing. Right? Because you have to have some sense of how much it is going to get you in trouble. Well, you it depends on the size of the kid because the toxic dose of lidocaine IV is 3 mils per kilogram. Right, right. So if you're a 10 kilogram kid, that's only 30 milligrams. So you can get over that in a 2 to 4% solution pretty quickly. But this suggests that orally it's absorbed pretty well. Yes, yes, it does suggest that. Well, yes. that's a larger picture. That's why with dehydrated kids, feeding them orally letting them have even water or something on the inside of their mouth is just as good as giving it IV. The mouth is a good absorptive field. Lastly, over-the-counter products are limited to a maximum of 2.5% is my understanding. So it is probably unlikely that the kids are going to have trouble with this, but it's not completely without some concern here that you could have a problem. And then the next thing we talked about is benzocaine. So benzocaine is a spray that I really like and I use a lot. So you take benzocaine spray and you spray it in the back of somebody's throat when you want to look down there, when you want to look for that fish bone, that kind of stuff. The thing that we noted on benzocaine-like sprays is be careful because you can develop methemoglobinemia. So you take the spray and you spray it in there and you spray it some more and you spray it some more and they start to do things to their iron atoms in their hemoglobin so that they can't then transport oxygen. And I don't think it's important to know whether it goes from 2 plus to 3 plus or 3 plus to 2 plus. But just know that benzocaine can produce this form of hemoglobin which makes the person turn blue. They can't oxygenate. And what's the therapy when they're turning blue? To give them methylene blue. Methylene which blue. Which is always freaky when they're turning blue and you want to give them a reductase thing that's blue and they're like, Doctor, I think you're out of your mind. Well, when the nurse says, treat the Smurf in room two, you kind of know what's going on. By the way, let me disagree for one second. I actually stopped using that stuff years ago. And if I think I want to look down into the throat, I give them an inhalation treatment mm-hmm. with 4% lidocaine. And if you do that, standard inhalation equipment, for five minutes, you could remove their tonsils and they wouldn't feel it. And then you don't run the risk of that methemoglobinemia. I mean, I'm not sure that there's a use for it anymore. Well, actually, I agree. I use inhaled lidocaine a lot like that, just through your little asthma nebulizer. 4% is the right amount. Like 6 six mils of 4% works very well. Yep. But then sometimes I find some people, a little bit of extra spray, not too much, not mm, smurf amounts, just a just little bit. A soup song. Uh, just a little, little bit. A soup song. And then you can take their tonsils out. Yep. Yeah. Well, did you remember the paper that had the 242 cases of methemoglobinemia due to benzocaine? Right. And remember all of these weirdo products that you've heard about, Ambisol, for your kids' gums and things like that? That's all about this drug and lanocaine. Are and Ambisol and Anusol, are they related at all? <laughs> the Saw family. The Saw family, uh, right. Origel, and there's some other ones. So. And, and you've heard of Americane? And then there's Australiacane. Canadacane? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, the idea here is we got to be a little bit concerned about benzocaine because these have occurred in the ER setting where people have just gone a little ape, numbing up people's throats. Yep. Yep. Then we also got into this business about GI cocktails. And, you know, there's this thing about if you have chest pain and you're trying to differentiate GI from cardiac that you might give them this you know the literature is just not going to support you if you go down that route saying oh he got better at when i gave him the gi cocktail Rick, so please we've had 15 years 
of papers on this that all say the same thing. I can't picture that anybody listening. See, the problem is we're speaking to the choir. I suppose there's somebody out there who still thinks that works, but nobody has ever shown that you can tell the difference between the heart and the stomach. I have them swallow this stuff. It doesn't work. And the other little pearl that we gave out, this is not going to be sit well with people, is the idea that the GI cocktail, the stuff of xylocaine and donatol and some antacid de jour is somehow better than plain old giving of antacids. We have a nice paper in the database compared to two. doesn't make any difference. I know that theoretically donatol decreases in motility. It's all crap. It is the same as just giving some antacid. Yeah, but this is a belief structure. <laughs> this isn't truly science. And everybody went through medical school and came up with their own sort of green snot preparation that they would pour down these people. Don't mess with that, Rick. I mean, see, now you're putting science on top of this. Don't do that. We also talked about guaiac testing and all of the things that can screw up guaiac testing in terms of false positives and false negatives and there is a better test actually it's called the immunochemical test which is less subjected to these variations that we talked about be interesting to look at the guac test or what you have in your department and lastly in this setting we talked about the gi aspirate using the gi aspirate to determine whether a person has a subtle upper gi bleed if they come in with blood around their lips i don't think they need the ng tube to ascertain where the blood's coming from or if it's pouring out their butt but in the so-so cases, people often feel compelled to make this diagnosis and put down the hose. And we have a really nice paper in the EMA database that says how often you can be misled by getting a falsely negative GI aspirate test. I mean, maybe the thing turns around and makes a knot and comes back up the esophagus. Who knows? But the paper says, and it nicely showed... You could screw up by undue reliance on an NG aspirate for yeah. diagnosing upper GI bleed. And I'm hoping that there's nobody left listening to this who still believes that douching the stomach with cold water or cold saline or cold anything. Oh, there's has- a couple of douchebags that still think that. <laughs> I have never that heard that, that word used <laughs> in that setting, actually. That's a new one on me. Yeah, well, you know. Douching I, the stomach. Douching the stomach. And I think at some point in time, we've got to put this thing down and say no. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Oh, next, the concept of paradoxical bradycardia. You know, I think that vital signs are still important, but you've got to know what they mean. And what I thought was a very interesting paper we reviewed that said, you know, the average 60, 70 kilogram man has about oh, 10 units in them, maybe you know, 5,000 cc's. If you bleed off 500 you can't tell exactly what's going on. It can be up, it can be down. In fact, it wasn't until they got to about 1,500 cc's that it was consistent. The other thing is, we've known for a long time that if you put blood inside the peritoneal cavity, you can get, through the autonomic nervous system, that paradoxical response. Well, you know, that was believed as the theory of why would that occur. However, this paradoxical bradycardia, which means that there's a lack of a tachycardic response, as you would anticipate from the adrenergic nervous system, has also been associated with free bleeding. I know that. You cut your leg off kind of thing, and it's always associated with a 
nastier outcome. You would like to have a tachycardia. When you see the bradycardia, not only does it have the opportunity to mislead you about, oh, it's probably normal, you know, there's no bleeding, this is probably this 30-year-old, does normally has a 90 blood pressure and a 70 pulse, and there's that opportunity. But it also, and we did a paper not too long ago that basically said, if you've got this phenomenon going on, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah, yeah no. bleeding, bradycardia, bad. Whether it's external <laughs> or internal, bleeding, bradycardia, bad. Remember Mel, Mel, you're a poet. I know. You're a veritable poet. And, My and whole you, career you is know. based on taking everything and summarizing it into bad three or not Bs. bad. Three Bs. <laughs> yeah. We took into account, too, the fact that the reliability of orthostatic vital signs is essentially gone. The textbooks are way behind on this issue. Too many people are still talking about orthostatics. And the bottom line is, I think that orthostatics are all over the map, and it certainly doesn't prove very much one way or the other. Well, you know, I think if somebody is an elderly person, somebody like your age kind of thing, I understand. In, <laughs> and they had these kind of syncopal spell or near syncopal spell or something like that, I think it is reasonable in those cases to do orthostatic vital signs. And what happens when grandpa stands up? And blood pressure does drop down to 90-something. Well, you've ascertained something. It doesn't mean that they're bleeding. It doesn't mean they're hypovolemic. It may mean they have some kind of adrenergic process that doesn't respond to verticalness. 90% of the time, it's the medications they're on yeah, exactly. uh, for that sort of thing. By the way, as we get into this, we're getting more and more people as we age who are coming in with that I almost fainted syndrome. And there's lots of new data coming out on the San Francisco criteria and syncope and that sort of thing. In the old folks, here's where the money still is. It's their heart or they've bled quietly through their GI tract or it's the medications they're taking. I think if you took those three things, you'd diagnose about 95% of these folks. Well, the problem with these orthostatic vital signs, obviously, is that we don't know the cutoff number. It's okay, like you were saying, if your blood pressure is 180 while you're lying down and then you stand up and it's 60, that's positive. But it's the subtle ones. It's the 20 increase or decrease in their systolic and their pulse goes up by 15. If you take normal people, they do that as well. So it's really only useful at the extremes. When there's a big drop, I go, yeah, that's for real. But these little ones that the textbooks quote 20 here and 30... That's useless. One of my favorite papers of all times was where they went and did orthostatic vital signs of people in the waiting room who were well. Yes. (laughs) Presumed to be well. 30% of them. And yeah, they had no reason to be hypovolemic. They weren't there for diarrhea or anything like that. They're there for, I got a cut finger. About 25 or 30% of them had positives, depending on how you define a positive. Right. Let's do the next series, which was about pancreatitis and some pearls with pancreatitis that we talked about. And first thing to remember is that pancreatitis, although a lot of the time is relatively mild and gives you a little bit of belly pain, it's still a fatal disease about 5%, 10% of the time. So it's a big deal. And you would like to believe that tests like amylase and lipase that we use to diagnose the condition, lipase being better than amylase, that the height of that amylase-emia would predict outcome, but it doesn't. It really is a very poor predictor. So you can have a 4,000 lipase and do well, and you can have a lipase that's a little bit bumped and do very badly. So that was the first take-home point that we had, that the height of the lipase is not a good predictor of ultimate outcome in these patients. Then what we talked about is the use of things like NG tubes and stuff that really don't change the outcome in these patients. And then we also talked about acalculus cholecystitis as well. So acalculus cholecystitis tends to be a disease in elderly patients. Uh, They tend to be really sick. They tend to be in ICUs. They have horribly bad prognoses. And this was something I didn't really sort of understand 
Dan. You can be sick, have cholecystitis, and no stones. And the two diseases are kind of linked in some ways because a really poor prognosis in pancreatitis is gallstone-related pancreatitis. And then there's a calculus cholecystitis that does really badly, and they have no stones. So all of these things sort of mush together. But they, I think the key thing to remember is that fact that the lipase is not a good predictor of outcome in pancreatitis. And remember, a calculus cholecystitis but that tends to not be people who walk into the emergency department. That tends to be people who are driven in because they're really sick or in the ICU. We're actually starting down a path here to talk about something which is a recurrent image over the last three years. As we're doing a review, let's just make the point. The patient trumps the test. If the patient looks sick, they are sick. And I'm going to present some cases in the next couple of months where doctors were sucked in by a normal this or a normal that, and the nursing notes about what the patient looked like killed them. Well, that gets to the idea of moving down in terms of the appendix and the CTs, and we are going to actually spend more time with that in the near future, but I just think that you need to remember that the CT is sometimes wrong, and the error rate really depends on the quality of the radiologist. It has been shown to range between 5 and 15% in terms of their error rate, maybe even more, but the fact is is that when you have a person who is clearly worried you and you have a negative test and you have conflicting data but most of us gravitate to the test and say well that must be right no i think that what you're actually looking at is the fact that the test is not positive or negative it can also be indeterminate at this time as long as we understand that at any moment in time we may not find what we're looking for repeating that test at some point may change it but what you can't do is ignore what the patient looks like if they've got abdominal pain, they've got abdominal... If they have guarding and rebound, Rick, they've got something going on in their belly. But I believe many of us perceive the gold standard is the CT, and that is an opportunity to make a mistake. I don't want to get too much into it because We're going to fight more this coming. out. Yeah. But I do want to say, Greg was on MRAP a couple of months ago, and we had a case exactly like this. It was a closed malpractice claim of a young girl who came in and the CT scan was negative and the ultrasound was negative and she was really sick. And people, I think, got fooled exactly as you said. Well, she can't be that sick because the CT and the ultrasound is negative and she's dead 12 hours later. Yep. Well, that's impressive. No, it was impressive. And I think the bottom line is old guys, which includes at least two of us here at this table, Thank you. Uh, came up when we didn't have those tests. And you know what? We didn't send them home. What we did was said... We're going to have to do something else, and I don't think that's wrong. Well, in April 2010, we did another review CD, so this is actually the May 2010, and here is the summary. Month was PID, which can be referred to as a pretty inadequate diagnosis, or pus in air, or whatever you'd like to call it. But what we pointed out was, this is a difficult diagnosis, and we tend to under-treat this diagnosis, and we don't take it seriously enough. In fact, if you actually look at all of the data, there's actually a fairly poor correlation between what we think is in there and what is actually grown out and what they find on laparoscope. And so we should not under-treat these folks or take them as non-serious. By the way, what are the take-home points on this? Number one, there's no such thing as one-sided PID. One-sided PID is called appendicitis. You know, think about this. It's like hemicystitis. There's no such thing as a one-sided bladder infection. Or diverticulitis may be the cause of a one-sided PID on the other side. <laughs> on the other side of the body, right. So you ought to think about this, and we ought to pay some real attention. 
You know, Greg, you're one of the faculty for the EMA course. And one I of, am, sir. One of the lectures we're doing this year, half hour, is on PID with the thrust being how often the literature says we are making this diagnosis incorrectly. And the data actually is fairly compelling. But the bottom line was, if you think that that person's got it, have a low threshold for treating but there are opportunities to make wrong diagnoses yeah. here as well. While we're low in the abdomen, let's take a couple of other things that we commented on. We pointed out that if you're going to decide that somebody has a kidney stone, don't make the diagnosis of kidney stone for the first time, a first-time stone, in somebody over the age of 50. At least it ought to run through your mind that you're dealing with their aorta, you're dealing with something else other than just a kidney stone. I think that the other thing is low back pain that comes on, not just in the flank, but in the back, in an older person, first time low back pain, you got to think about some other diagnoses. Kidney stone could be one, the aorta could be another, an epidural abscess could be part of that discussion. And for us to just sort of casually write it off as a stone or some other problem, I don't think is probably right, Rick. Well, this is about risk management, and most of the times, common things will be common, but we don't get into trouble for that stuff. We get into trouble for not being thorough, not being careful, not broadening the view of what may be going on. By the way, I've heard multiple times in court, and while I've been there defending somebody, that you don't need hematuria to have a stone. Hematuria is not necessarily part and parcel to a stone. The other side of that coin is people with abdominal aortic aneurysms can have hematuria, particularly if it involves the renal arteries. And so I think that if you're going to make your case, live your life based on a few red cells in the urine, you've made a serious mistake because it's not consistent. No, it's just proof that God hates emergency physicians. The fact that you can have a kidney stone with no blood in your urine and you can have an abdominal aortic aneurysm with blood in your urine is just proof that God hates us. But I used to hear this out of radiologists all the time. They'd say, now they don't because we get a CT scan. But in the old days, when we did other studies, they'd say, well, is there blood in the urine? And they honestly believed no blood, Honestly, no study. But, you know, they're a radiologist. I mean, come on. That's not, you don't, you wouldn't expect them to know these nuances, you know? <laughs> yeah, but they think they know and they're very annoying. I could tell you a story later about that. I had one recently. Oh, we need to keep this moving. Let me tell you about mesenteric ischemia, which was the next thing we talked about. Well, wait, wait one second, uh -oh. there, Chief. You wanted to say anything about the epididymitis now that you're down in the genitalia? No. Do you still do cases where epididymitis torsion is an you, issue? You know, it's actually much less that it used to be. Well, then we can move on. Yeah, but they're still there. I mean, the bottom line is this. If it's a young guy with sudden pain in his testicle, you got to think about torsion. Epididymitis is the second diagnosis you think about, not the first. I actually had a guy who once diagnosed a two-year-old with acute epididymitis. Was of course, sexually, sexually active, active two-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Can I go now? I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to miss anything. You know? All right. Then the next thing we talked about was mesenteric ischemia, a disease I find fascinating. And the key points that we wanted to talk about there was remember that elderly patients with pain out of proportion to signs, so they've got lots of belly pain, you press on the belly and there's not much guarding or anything going on there. If you add to that atrial fibrillation, this is an incredibly high-risk patient and that person needs, well, what really happens is that they get a CT scan, but probably what they need is to have some dye study to find the blockage. But this is a really high-risk case, and if you remember nothing else, old patient, AFib, pain out of proportion to signs, 
then you're looking for the diagnosis. Now, there are some of these people that have a more chronic intestinal angina form. They eat lunch, they get more blood flow to their belly, then they get the pain and then it goes away. This suggests that there's not so much a thrombotic disease, but maybe a venous or an arterial clot there that's blocking them chronically. But if you get that story and then the pain's worse then they've probably got acute on chronic ischemia. But the take-home risk management point is if you're going to order a CT and that's somewhere in your working diagnosis, do some IV contrast because if you're going to give them all the risks and problems of a CT scan, you might as well get some benefit from it and see what the arterial flow is because that's what this is about. Yeah, sometimes they talk about some of these are just low flow states where there's not an occlusion but they're just kind of a little on the sluggish side. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that tends to be people with bad CHF who are not perfusing the rest of their body. They're in ICUs, but we can see it as well. We ended that issue with a paper from Health Economics, which was very complex, very detailed, and addresses the question about how much money is spent on malpractice concerns in the setting of clinical medicine. We all talked about defensive medicine. They came up, and you really ought to get this paper if this is a matter of interest for you, 2 to 10%, 2 to that's a fairly wide range, frankly. Wide? It's five <laughs> times. It's unbelievable. That's a couple of trillion dollars. Which immediately, a couple trillion? Yeah, at least. What that said was basically, we don't know exactly how to apportion that because, Doc, it's not the money in the system. It's the docs deciding that they're going to need 15 more tests to protect themselves. That's the problem. Well, they said that was a combination of malpractice costs and this defensive medicine. And, you know, defensive medicine quantification is going to be soft to begin with, but that's what they came up with. This is a very well done detailed paper. They also said malpractice settlements only account for 0.3% of all of this money, the settlements. So it's most of it is defensive medicine by far. But anyway, that's enough of that. Yeah. Moving on to the May issue, Dr. Michael Frank, who is the Director of Risk Management of EMP, Emergency Medicine Physicians of Ohio, MDJD. BFD. (laughs) Was our guest and for the entire recording. And we wanted to take advantage of Michael's extensive experience in dealing with the review of cases and the intervention in cases that EMP has been involved with, of which there's been a huge number of cases for which they've been sued, as we all know. Yeah, Michael was. <laughs> no, Michael. We're Michael's all a very bright guy, and I think that we should hit a couple of things. Because for those of you out in Radio Land who are listening, he made some very good points. One of those I want to jump on is the templated chart has potential limitations somewhere ladies and gentlemen boys and girls have a way to write down dictate have some sort of discussion because you're going to have that unusual case where there is no checkbox when there is no checkbox you have to have something that lets us know what's going on and we've all seen those cases where they followed the outline, and it was the wrong outline. The checkbox chart has its problems. And then another thing he talked about, which I found very useful because I believe this, that the medical decision-making note is very useful in the defense of these cases, and also the charting of times. I saw them now, I called the consultant then, and this is what I'm thinking, and this is what our plan is. So medical decision-making notes, I think, are very good from a medical point of view, just us speaking to other physicians, and then he suggested that it's actually very useful when you're sued to tell the jury, here's what they were thinking, and it was reasonable. Yeah, he also talked about, which I think is good, that if they come in with a neurologic complaint to say that the neuro exam is non-focal is probably not an adequate discussion of the problem 
I mean, by the way, there are plenty of neurological diseases which aren't focal. When you think about it, subarachnoid hemorrhage isn't focal. Dementia isn't focal. You know, neurosyphilis isn't focal. So there's lots of things that can cause problems which aren't focal. And we get into this habit of in each section, just making this little kind of brief statement, which doesn't actually say anything about the disease presenting to us. Yes, I think that was the emphasis is you can use maybe non-focal if somebody comes in with shortness of breath for their neurologic exam. Right. But please don't say that if somebody comes in with a neurologic complaint. Dictation, as he points out, still remains the main vehicle to give us gold standard records. The problem that's hit the country is our standard way of dictating, having a human take down what we say is ungodly expensive. Most groups have looked at this and say they're running between 12 and $15 a chart. So as the newer systems, the Dragon systems, all these others come online, maybe we're going to be going back to some dictation because I'll tell you, the docs out there, our friends, the attendings, there's nothing they like better than a couple of paragraphs that they can read and understand what went on. The bigger a chart gets with checkboxes, the harder it is to know what happened to that patient. Yeah, I was actually surprised that he was pretty adamant about that, The dictation remains the gold standard. Then we got into the electronic medical record, and what was interesting about this is although there's all these government incentives to do this stuff, it's really not clear that these are very good at all, that they reduce physician productivity, they produce these reams of papers, and there's no good evidence that any of this stuff improves the quality of care or reduces your risk. And they certainly, at least when they're initially implemented, significantly reduce the amount of time you're spending with a patient because you're spending all your time trying to input the data onto the computer. I know Rick loves these. Well, it was also interesting that we talked about discharge instructions, and they've gone totally out of control. People leave with 10 and 15 and 20 pieces of paper. I remember when the entire ER chart was one piece of paper, and there are other people at this table who remember that time. And there was actually a study about that that said there was no difference in the number of unscheduled return visits if they had handwritten materials at discharge or whether they had these huge computer-generated things. And I think we need to just be honest about that. Sometimes we've gone in the wrong direction. And that's the wrong direction. There was also the talk about the use of scribes, and I know that EMP is starting to use scribes in certain settings, and we've used scribes for a number of years at our hospitals in an attempt to walk the fine line between trying to do decent charting but not taking up to 20 minutes a patient to do it. I think we get into this continuously about is it perfect, is it the best, that sort of thing. Bottom line is we're in a productivity-driven business, if we don't see an adequate number of patients, they're going to back up till hell won't have it. There has to be a reasonable compromise here as to what is done by the physician and what is done by support people. And I think a well-trained scribe should be able to put down most of the things that you need and then the doc concentrate on taking care of patients. And this is a reminder. I was told this. I don't know this directly, but I was told by two authoritative people that scribes cannot independently put down the history of present illness. They can do family history, social history, view systems, all that other stuff, but the HPI does need to be generated by the physician. Now, the scribe can, you know, write down what their physician is saying, those kinds of things, but many times scribes go ahead of the doctor, get information. HPI apparently is verboten. By who? CMS? I think so. Honestly, I was told by two billing people that they can't do that. Yeah, I'm sure it has something to do with how much they can bill, but we need to think about it. 
we got into a little tiny spat on the issue of <laughs> it trends. Was nothing, nothing. Nothing on the trends in EM litigation. Mike is not as high on the ASEP's expert witness reaffirmation statement as I am. I'm an aggressive guy. I think we ought to go after people. Mike thinks we ought to let them hang themselves and then just in the courtroom go after their testimony. But to me, better to cut them off at the knees early. What does that statement say, just as a reminder? The ASAP statement is 10 points adopted by the college, requested by the council, approved by the board, and it goes through and says, if you're a board-certified ASAP emergency physician, you believe that these 10 points should govern your role as an expert witness. And one of those is you should be giving testimony which is consistent with what is happening in the country. Not your own theory of what ought to be, but what is. Because after all, I mean, we all have individual theories on things. That doesn't mean that's what it is. The other thing is, you shouldn't be getting a percentage of the win. Things like that are all part of this. So doctors are supposed to sign this and say, acknowledge these principles? Or how does that work? When I advise attorneys this week, we've had two people give depositions, and we present them the ASEP statement at the beginning of the deposition. We read the 10 points, and they're asked to sign it and have it notarized. Notarized? Notarized. Right there, because the court reporter is a notary, so that that's attached to the deposition. And what it does is put them on record that this will be going to the ethics committee at ASEP should they have, let's say, egregious testimony in the original Greek sense of that word. Yeah, I'm with Greg. I love the idea that there is a place that we can tell on people, basically. Go to ASEP. AEM also has it that says these people's testimony is completely bogus. Have an independent panel look at this. And if it's bogus, have them have a little note next to their name so that the lawyer can go, Sir, have you or have you not been certified as a bad witness by ASEP and AEM? That's exactly right. But I think everybody ought to have a fair trial and hang them. Well, Michael's not here. Michael's not here, so I'm going to take his position. He basically says, I want somebody who's going to give egregious testimony to go in there and make a total ass of themselves, and I'm just going to cut him off at the legs. Wait a second. That's because you think the jury will understand that. Those are the same 12 people who said OJ didn't do anything. Give me a break here. Moving on. Oh, we got into this thing about, let's ask him about cases, the trends in litigation. Now, we had this divergence where they had you and he had a little disagreement, but... He started listing cases that we need to be heads up on, and Corder Aquina was one of those. Who went to do Corder? Like in Corder Aquina cases, he said, like as everybody has been saying, as the literature has been saying, is more and more common. They're seeing more and more of these, and there was a paper we did that said maybe it's three times more common now than it was 10 years ago. And that's our experience at USC. We are seeing a huge number of these. Here's the problem. You can't take the USC experience and extrapolate it, but... The reason we see it in other settings, the USC experience is going to be related to drugs, I bet, 80% of the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what we're seeing in the community hospital are those people who've had metal put in their back for other reason. Those people who've had the compressive devices, those people who've had these inflation devices. Well, don't confuse us now. I think you're talking about infections. We're talking about compression of the cord by these or whatever things, the tumors or masses. The most common cause, actually, I read this, 
is a central disc. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah we, I did confuse it a little bit. I started talking about spinal epidural abscess, which can right. produce a yes. corticoquina syndrome because I'm into that. But, yeah, corticoquina syndrome itself, which is just that pressing on the end of the cord, can occur from tumors, central disc prolapse. So most of your discs go out laterally and give yes, you a lateralizing. But if it goes straight back, which supposedly only occurs in one in a thousand discs, but there's a lot of discs that are moving around, so it's not that uncommon. You can get quadriquinus. But, but I think the points were the same, and that is right. if you haven't asked about sensation, motor, bowel and bladder, do they have a temperature? I mean, there are things, all back pains aren't the same. The other thing is low back pain is everywhere. When it's mid-back or high back, those are odd cases. And I think you have to take those people a little more serious tent. I mean, Rick, would you agree with that? I don't want to confuse the epidural abscesses with the corticoquina, which we may have done just a tad here. So basically, we're talking about a mechanical issue in the corticoquina that's compressing nerves, causing bladder retention and overflow incontinence, and your anus is uh, dilated four feet or something like that. And you know, in your dreams, Rick. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that this can become on subtly. Or it could become on catastrophically. So those are the distinctions and the ideas. You got to be aware of it. And the obvious cases are obvious, but we don't get sued for obvious cases. We get sued for the subtle cases. So, Greg, the things that you mentioned, I think, are very important. On the other side of the case was the epidural abscesses, and where you're talking about these infections, the skin, the bladder, they see to the back, anterior, posterior. They have a low-grade fever, and if you don't circle that temperature on that chart, you will regret it terribly in every case that has back pain. Correct. The idea here is this idea that there's this propensity for it to occur in the thoracic area where back pain does not normally occur. Most back pain is in the lumbar or the cervical area. The idea of pressing on a spinous process and generating pain, that is atypical for musculoskeletal pain. It is one of the little clues that this may be going on because... All we hear from the insurance companies is tell the doctors about this entity because we're getting nailed on it. Yeah, we hear it over and over again. And, of course, they can have the bladder bowel signs as they take out their cord. Now, I've got to tell you a quick story. So on Friday, I was working, and I had a guy, IV drug user, back pain. And I said, okay, it's spinal epidural abscess, so I'm not brilliant. And let's get the MRI. And the radiologist said, I'm not going to do this test unless you do a CRP and call the neurosurgeon. And so I said, I don't <laughs> think what? so. Say what? <laughs> I don't care. Okay, I'll give you the CRP. It's a hundred. How's that? And the neurosurgeon said, get the MRI. I mean, please. Did they, he really people, say that? People, and this was a fellow, and I had to go up to the attending level saying, this is what your fellow is saying, and I don't care. We're getting the test. And of course, this person had a paraspinous abscess, and it was very bad, and he went to the OR. And it's just like, don't listen to people when they tell you no. to do surrogate tests, whether it's a neurosurgeon as your surrogate test, or a C-reactive protein, or an ESR. You need a gold standard test, and it's called an MRI. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, every case that I've done that has to do with compression of the spinal cord, it's time from the initial concern to the time of operation, which is the discussion. Nobody cares about you getting all these little things in between. It's point A to point B. And you know what? We don't put it on them in radiology that much. But when we tell them, this is it, you got to get this for me, 
they ought to do it. Time is continents. Although there are the subtle, <laughs> just made that there up. are the very subtle cases, and so those are the ones where the temperature is one hundred point four, and you know you're kind of saying, well, "What's going on here?" It's not unreasonable to get a said rate kind of thing before you push the button. It's uh, we can't get an MRI. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. We cannot get an MRI after five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. So it all depends on your Bayesian analysis of yeah. the situation. Well, but the Bayesian analysis is. <laughs> Think it through. If a said rate comes back at 40, what are you going to do in this case? Well, at our hospital, we'd have to make a big frickin' fuss to get somebody in there to do this. Not that we wouldn't, but the fact is you'd feel more justified now. You've got more evidence. You've Bayesianized this thing. Yeah, yeah and I think that's not unreasonable, but I've thought about this the other way. I mean, if these go for a couple of million bucks, Greg tells us these are expensive lawsuits. Big time. How many MRIs, how many times do you have to call on a tech to pick the one up that saves you a few million dollars? And I would say that's probably a hundred times. I want to take the money out of this for no just argument. a second. No argument. Yeah, and that is is if you've got somebody in there and the difference between having a life in a wheelchair and something reasonable, if you're waiting until they're weak, if you're waiting till their bladder has a thousand cc's in it, then I'm sorry, you've waited too long, in my opinion. But the whole thing is the subtle cases. These patients generally go home, they're discharged home, and they come back. It's not that they had a thousand cc's in their bladder when you saw them. Right. Those are the cases that don't get litigated. Right. Dave Talon, our guest a couple of months ago, also went into this entity with some level of depth. Some vigor, yes. Yes. Other things that Mike Frank said that we ought to consider doing and come up with a way to handle them are... You know, 10-minute EKGs. Yep. It's a standard. Whether you like it or not, AHA says we want you to do it, so you have to kind of try I, to figure a way out the way to do it. I know they say that, Rick, but if you go to major medical centers, I bet if I go to USC, there's a guy in the waiting room who hasn't had his EKG in 10 minutes. No. I, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the bottom line is still this. You do what you can do. I agree. I'd like to have mine in 10 minutes. I'd like everybody to have theirs in 10 minutes. But I wouldn't start putting it forward that in all cases you violated the standard of care if they haven't gotten it. It's not the standard of care, actually. Right. This is one of those areas where there's a discrepancy between what we want you to do and what you do do. Right, exactly. Speaking of doo-doo, Speaking let's of move doo-doo. on. <laughs> Speaking of doo-doo, we're in deep doo-doo. Problems in the waiting room are not your problem, but the hospital needs to take responsibility. We see all of these videotapes now of people having seizures and dying in the waiting room. Yeah. No, to some extent, they are your problem. If you're the doc at a single doc-covered place and you can't move people through, you're a part of the problem. But you're right. The nursing staff has to know who's out there, be checking on people, and some people have to be brought back. I don't care how full you are. you got to find a place for them. Anything else that we covered in that issue? Resuscitation of fetal patients principle was reiterated that you are not obligated to, in your opinion, if the case is considered to be futile, do resuscitation. And I only point out that we're the Mills Lecture in September in Las Vegas for ASEP, the national meeting, will be on futile care in the emergency room, and we've put together a great panel of people to talk about this, because I think that this is the new reality, that you and I are going to be seeing more and more people at the end of their life. And what we're going to do is going to determine how much money is spent and how much of the department is tied up with futile care. Yeah, I think that's great. That's one of my pet peeves. I thought that was actually he did a wonderful job. I thought we got to get him back, Michael Frank. Well, actually, he does a mock deposition in the course that EMP puts on. 
their risk management course, and he has given us permission to include that mock deposition in a future episode. Super. Very good. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is a summary of the third year of Risk Management Monthly. We've covered all of the months, what I think to be all of the key points, and you're going to get two discs to listen to all this stuff ad nauseum. Well, they already have got the discs if they're listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) The summary is two discs on top of what you already got. But no, no, no. People who subscribe now for the first time don't have all those old discs, you know? That's true. That's true. They're going to get the summary. That's kind of one of the reasons we're doing this. We're trying to do three years' worth of stuff in six discs in basically six hours. You'll have heard everything that's really what we think to be important in three years and six hours. Rick, I honestly think that those six discs could be a curriculum in risk management for any resident who wants to get some information right now as to what to do. But ladies and gentlemen, we're about to start our fourth year next month. We look forward to seeing you. Goodbye for now. Over and out. Goodbye.